1: This is the Jabberjaw
0: Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one.
1: I just started a new phrase called "Yas Queens Reich," and no one will know what the hell I'm talking about. Thank you for tuning in to the X-Man Podcast. I am your host, Doc Coyle. Welcome. I sit right now in the back of an empty tour bus in Indianapolis, Indiana, and feel pretty good. Got a day off. Uh, the tour, Bad Wolves co-headline tour, we're like four shows in, five days in and it's so going really really well so far. We have a couple sellouts. We had a really big show yesterday in Evansville, Indiana, and I'm like actually very surprised, pleasantly surprised. You know, I'm waiting for, you know, to be a couple duds here and there um to to humble us. And uh we'll see what happens. I'm sure they will they will be there, but I think for the most part it's going to be a really really successful tour. So I'm 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 very grateful. Thank to everyone who's been coming out to the shows and we're, you know, check uh, check badwolvesnation.com for more dates. We're pretty much doing uh, some Northeast, uh, Southeast, Midwest, Texas. And I think the furthest West we go is like Denver area. So it's, it's not a full U.S. tour, but we're, we're getting to a fair amount of the, the U.S. So definitely check that out and make it out if you can. Um, you know, there's been some... Some big news recently that I feel needs addressing. A few people have reached out to me, and asked my opinion. Um, Asley Dying has reformed, returned uh, with the same lineup that they had when um, everything da- went down with uh, the singer Tim Lambesis and him going to prison and everything. And um, it's been kind of fascinating seeing the blowback. Um, which, you know, we've had some prominent people, Jamie Josta, some other people, um, MetalSucks.net come out pretty harsh, harshly, I think, against uh, against the guys in the band, um, including Tim, obviously. And, um, you know, and, and I think it's... And then some people have said, well, there's kind of a cascade of silence. You know, people will say things in private, but they won't come out and, and say anything. Uh and I think that's that makes a lot of sense to me because I think the situation is is not as clear as some people would like to make it seem, or as simple as some people would like to make it seem. And unfortunately, because of the way I think social media is, um, you know, kind of linked to our lives, we have this idea of something happens, right? And then we expect people who are people that offer opinions. I guess now everyone offers their opinions because of we all have access to this immediately after, right? Don't do research. Don't um, sit, sit there and ruminate and actually let the the events play out and kind of reserve judgment. It's like, you have to have a concrete opinion one way or another. And that's hot take culture. That's the, um, you know, the CNN panel that's, Stephen A. Smith on on Sports Center. LeBron James needs to go play here or something. You know that's, and I think it's important not to get wrapped up in that. And and the thing is, in many ways, I think my, my take on it is I have reserved judgment, um, because a, you know it's I, I you know it's funny. So I'll just, I'll just make a little analogy real quick. I just watched this documentary on Rachel Dolezal, the the lady who, the white lady who basically pretended to be black. Um, and from the outside looking in, it, it's pretty easy to beat beat up on this lady and think she's a terrible person, yada yada yada. But you watch the documentary and you find out she's a fairly sympathetic character, and you can only do that when you dig deeper. And I think it's very easy, you know. It's it's kind of really actually really fascinating because because you know me, you guys know I, I lean a little bit to the left, you know, and that's that's kind of my, my you know where I kind of sit. But I notice what's kind of happened with that kind of, you know, the kind of the progressive movement is it has become the most judgmental movement, I think. And and the most you would think the people that are for prison reform and that are for, um, you know, maybe less punitive measures against criminals or against the death penalty would also kind of use that same um, leniency in other cases. But it's not the. The truth, like, you know, and I talked a little bit about this, you know, when the whole Me Too thing was was blowing up, is that, you know, they essentially, what a lot of people are coming out saying, you know, like, metal sucks, is, hey, uh," you know, they shouldn't be able to do this anymore. They shouldn't be able to do the band. They shouldn't be able to make a living from this. And I'm just like, well, what do you want people to do? Is it like, okay, so the guy went to prison. He did something very fucked up. Thankfully, nothing went down, right? I know people say, well, if it did, well, it didn't. So let's deal with the reality of things, not what could have been. Um, Did something really messed up. Did some time. His reputation is ruined forever. So there is a cost. There is a lifelong kind of cost to that. Um, And then the rest of the guys in the band had their living and careers destroyed, you know they tried. They did other things. You know, Woven where They did some stuff, um, but it's been a struggle. Um, you know, but I think people want you to. If you mess up, you do certain things, then you should basically go in a cave, and never come out. And I, I just, I just don't really see the benefit of that. You know, if we're a society that just does not believe in rehabilitation does not um, <clears throat> want to see see someone who has done something bad, take that person and see that they have potential to do good, uh, then I don't know what we are. It's funny. I'm not a Christian. I'm not religious. But I do believe in that tenet of forgiveness and second chances. I just I just don't get it. I don't know. But the thing is, it's like we want, we're, I think one of the most dominant, you um, know, uh, aspects of our culture is vengeance. We want you to pay, man. We want you to grovel, we want you to hurt when you do something wrong. Well, listen, I get it, it's... it's Maybe that's a bit in our souls, as human beings, is you do something bad, then you have to have it done to you eye for an eye, I guess. And, I, and, I, and I, I can see why a lot of people look at the world that way. It's just not the way I look at the world. And some say, well, what if they did something to your family? You know, I guess I'll have to cross that bridge when I get there because I'm sure I will feel that way. Right. Um, you know, who knows? I don't know. But I think it's important, you know, for me, the me, the only thing that matters when someone says, what do you think about the whole asley Dying thing? And I say, it doesn't matter what I think. There's only a few people who I think opinions about this matter. It's Tim's ex-wife and... Their, the children, their adopted children they had together, and the four guys in uh dying. And I would say even the people, you know, who were, you know, the agents and the labels and the people that were involved in their career, I think those people have some say in that as well. But it doesn't really matter what I think. I mean ultimately the fans are gonna decide, right? If these guys are doing this rollout and they're putting out a record, they're doing tour, if no one buys the record, if no one shows up, it's probably it's probably not gonna work out. You know, so they have a a say, but it doesn't matter what I think. Um, I'm friends with all the guys in that band. And Tim was a close friend of mine before all this stuff went down. You know, and I still, I wrote an article about this and I'll probably repost it. And all this went down is how do we deal with people that mess up? You know, do we go to one side where it's, hey, I'm loyal to people close to me, right? So this is the idea, like, Let's say my father and my kid is uh, turns into a terrorist and like shoots up a school or blows up something. Does my love for my son trump the morality of the act, right? I, th- I, I think you'd find most people it would, right? So they, this is the people that, oh, my son would never do such a thing, right? They, their love disallows them from believing that someone close to them could do something bad, right? Or is it AI hey, of principle but let's see if this person can get through because the truth is some people are beyond saving, right Some people are just you know uh, mentally, emotionally things have gotten to such a point where they are beyond help. you know and these are the the true sociopaths and psychopaths and you know and these in nine times out of ten these are the people that have had the worst things happen to them and they are essentially putting back on the world what has done to them and this is you know child abuse, uh, molestation, whatever. But you know, I actually highly recommend you guys watch a show called Mind Hunter, um, which is about the whole the FBI, FBI's post uh, psychological uh, studies they did about serial killers. And I, I find that stuff fascinating. And I'm much more on the idea of you know maybe being a little morally ambivalent to get to the the cause. Um, and this is almost like we were watching Seven on the bus the other day. The the um, the issue between Morgan Freeman's character and Brad Pitt's character, where one sees someone doing terrible things as, well, they're just crazy and they're crazy people. And other and Morgan Freeman's character saying, no, you have to see that there's something there's something broader and more distinct and kind of intellectual happening here, even though the acts themselves are brutal. Uh, but anyway, I don't want I don't wanna get too much into the weeds on on off of course on that. But what I'm saying is it really doesn't matter what I think I think those people, if Tim's wife, the one who was theoretically in uh in danger, forgives him, then it doesn't matter what we think if she doesn't forgive him, I think it i think then yeah then uh if she's upset by this and is pissed off and his kids hate him, and you know i then I think that does change uh the narrative or you know, and I don't even really know what the narrative is, but i will I will say one there you know one criticism. I've heard from Jamie Josta and um, and some other people about that. They didn't put out a statement. They didn't kind of present this whole comeback in a way. And I, I agree with that. I think as a band that they would have been better served by helping shape uh, the story. And that's on their team. I think that's, you know, every everything in this, this world, um, the entertainment world is all PR and kind of. Putting out an image that you feel represents who you are. So like I said, I hope I hope that doesn't feel like I'm sitting on the fence too much. But I do feel like it's, it is none of my business. And you serve the time. After that, you should be able to go and have a life. That's what I believe. Might be wrong, but it is what I believe. So with that said, I am going to get into this week's show sponsor. We have a band from Denver, Colorado. And they're called Smack Factor. And we're going to play a track from their album called Use Once and Destroy. And this is actually the title track. This is Use Once and Destroy. Check it out. That was Smack Factor with the song Use Once and Destroy from the album of the same name available now. You can check that out on SmackFactor322.bandcamp.com and also their website SmackFactor.net. And they have some shows coming up. They On June 22nd, they will be playing with Flotsam and Jetsam at Herman's Hideaway in Denver, Colorado, on July 9th, they will be opening for Inanimate Existence at Silver Music Hall and Events Center in Lakewood, Colorado. And on August 12th, they'll be playing with Power Glove. We used to have the same, well, Ben Goffbit had the same managers as Power Glove. Uh, August 12th at Sunshine Studios Live in Colorado Springs colorado check them out support them they're a really cool band thank you so much to them for sponsoring the show uh, we do have some show sponsorship availabilities coming up so please hit me up if you want to sponsor the show i'm actually running out of interviews guys i'm gonna have to do some more interviews i'm i'm out here playing rock and roll have no time to do no damn podcast so i need to get on that hit me up on social media if you want to sponsor the show or drop me an email at the x Men podcast at gmail.com. Excuse me there. Oh man, crazy. We're talking too damn fast. And real quick, just have to shout out our other show sponsor, Rockabilia.com. You know them, you love them. So get this I actually got to go, I and the rest of the guys from Bad Wolves got to go to the Rockabilia warehouse in near Minneapolis from um, outside. And I have to give them all the thanks in the world, Frankie. Over there, this guy treated us like royalty. He had donuts and beer for us, guys. That's all you really need to have for me because I love donuts and beer. But guess what? The donuts and the beer was not the highlight. The highlight was getting to walk through this warehouse and see all the stuff they had. I mean, I got a sick Faith No More shirt. I got a sick Thin Lizzy shirt. I got a death leprosy hoodie. I got a motherfucking Rambo pullover sweatshirt, bro. Rambo. And I got Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. I'm decked out. Everyone looks like G's out here on, on tour because Rockabilia really does have it all. So huge, 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 huge thanks to them. And, uh, yeah, go to their website. Ch- check it out. They have everything, guys. I was there. I was at the place. I know for a fact they actually have everything. So you can go over there. You can get a, an exclusive Bad Wolves T-shirt. It's a white shirt with the black logo. And you can get a discount first time you go, 15% off with our discount code, Jabberjaw. And now that all the business is out of the way, just want to say a couple quick words about our guest, Sahaj Ticketon. I know I'm, It sounds weird. I'm probably saying it wrong. We talk about how to say his name on this. You know, it's terrible, but I just call him Sahaj, and he's the main man from a band called Ra who had a lot of success um, in the early 2000s, major label, sold a bunch of records, had a bunch of radio play, and then he transitioned into becoming a singer-songwriter-producer, and that's how we met through the band Mates Hall I was playing with, and he's just a great guy. I mean, one of the most talented people I've probably uh, been around. He's brought me in on some writing sessions. Just love watching him work, and he's one of those guys that can truly do it all and I'm just really glad I got a chance to have him on the show because I think his story is fascinating. And he's just just such a good, good dude, talented. And you know what? I think you guys are going to love this one because me and him know how to mix it up. So please check out my conversation with Sahaj Tickerton. So you know what I was doing? Driving up here. I was listening to the Sahaj solo album. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that record, actually. That was a really fun record for me. Every one of those songs I wrote for uh, my wife. She's a singer? No, I just wrote them for her.
1: Oh, for like love I, songs? I met her, yeah. Okay.
2: And I wrote seven songs in like a year all about her being in love with her. And then I was like, well, fuck, I got seven. Let's just do
1: three more and I got an album. Well, it's funny. I was listening to it and I was like, you were born in the wrong decade. <laughs> because i feel like if you were coming to prominence in like the mid-70s or the mid-80s you would have been like peter Satara or someone possibly like this. or like you know just just one of these i've been c- told either
2: i've been told both i've been told that i was born 10 years too early or 10 there's years too late. late
1: yeah i mean there's there, there there's, there's a good case to be made for for both but i i would say I was actually I was I was thinking about it because when the first rock record came out, it's about the same time the first God forbid mm-hmm. album came out on on Central Media, and in many ways it was like that was also the peak of the record industry, right? So the most records ever in the history of the world were sold in 2001, I think, or 2000, right. something like that, but it was also the beginning of the end, right? right? Certainly for rock, yeah, and uh, and it's really well, just I, I would say just the. The industry of actually selling physical records, right? Okay, that was the beginning of, of the of the end of that. Of course, the industry has kind of evolved into this into this other thing. But it's also about it's just fascinating. Of when I think about someone like you who has this really really unique skill set, you know, where where like in many ways, like I was I was listening to all the records, I was listening to solo record, and I'm just like, you're kind of one of the reasons why I, I wonder if you're a producer songwriter. More so now than primarily musician, is that you're kind of overqualified to be <laughs> a rock a rock guy. Because most, I don't know, just, I mean, that's the reason I was saying about being um, a little ahead, you know, like you were from a different era. Because back then, you kind of did have to do everything, right? You look at like the guys in like the Eagles or like the guys in like the Bee Gees. Like, right, right, these guys yeah. had to, you know, you hear how amazing those records sound. It's like, yeah, they had to go in there and just do it and be that good. Oh, and not, not you know, and don't forget
2: the amount of money it costs to make a record back in those days so you really had to stand out for somebody to cough up a million bucks just to make the record including distribution you know so it was expensive back in those days you know studios were thousands of dollars a day and which is more than they are now yeah and it was 30 years ago
1: you know records were really expensive well that's a big big reason uh did you see that documentary about why am i forget the wrecking crew Mm -mm. about the the group of studio musicians that played on like Pet Sounds and there were all these like- I
2: watched the other one, the one that had uh, uh, like the Sidemen or the- side of the blues one? No, there was one that was on Netflix recently that had like- Hired Gun? Yeah, Hired Gun. Okay,
1: so those are dramatically different but related in a, in a lot of ways. So for those of you guys who don't know, there's a great documentary called The Wrecking Crew and it's about these group of mostly they were- Jazz musicians mm-hmm. who eventually became the backing bands for all these ma- major artists, and they would it would be that thing of, hey, we're we're getting rid of, part of the reason why they use these musicians is that they would do the same thing better in a quarter of the time, and because like you said, records are so expensive, it's like no, we got to go in there in a couple of takes right. and 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 knock it out. So it's really interesting. But, um I don't know, so it, was, it made me think think about that when you, when you came out, but I, I really know nothing about where you got your start. Like, where did you actually learn to play, to sing, to So right? When I was five years old,
2: I was already singing. So at five years old, what I was doing, my brother, who's seven years older than me, um, when I was ten, he was seventeen. He went to music and art high school. He was a singer. <clears throat> he was a singer. And uh, he started bringing home albums from the late 70s. So he was bringing home Stanley Clark, he was bringing home Chicoria, he was bringing home all these fusion jazz albums. One of them was this band called Return to Forever. And Return to Forever was Stanley Clark, Chicoria, Meola, and Lenny White. It's kind of like a super group of, of early fusion jazz rock guys. And they made this album called A Romantic Warrior. And on the cover of the album was a picture of a knight. Basically, you know, in this incredible painting. You know, where albums were big. So I'm this little kid. I'm a five-year-old. I'm looking at this painting of this knight. And I would listen to this album at five. I'm not lying. Five and six years old. I would listen to this album, and I would act out the solos as if they were the characters in the songs. So each one song was called the Majestic Warrior. One song was called the, the the Tyrant and the Jester. One song was called The Romantic Warrior. One song, you know, and I literally started acting out, like moving my mouth to Al solos, but to me it wasn't the, I didn't care about the musicianship. I was just into the fantasy of these characters and how they spoke to each other and how the the duel of the jester and the tyrant was actually a story via instrumental music. And I was obsessed with it. I did it all the time. I would do it in my underwear in the living room and my mother would look at me like I was completely out of my mind. And from that my bro- from that late uh, 70s to the early 80s, um, my brother started bringing home records. Again, my brother was really the person, but he, he started bringing home records by Peter Gabriel. And I heard my first, in 1980, I think I heard Zenyatta Mandala for the first time and I had a little tiny tape recorder that was uh, one of those one speaker, you press the button to play it type tape recorders, and it only played at three-quarters speed. It would never play uh, in full volume, it wouldn't play at full speed. So I listened to Zenyatta Mandata on cassette in 1980 over and over again about 10 BPM slower than it actually was, <laughs> but I would sit in the car. My parents had a house upstate New York, and it was an hour and a half drive, and I would literally sit there with the speaker to my ear thinking about the guitars in um, Driven to Tears. You know, the, the ding, ding, all those weird sounds. Like, to me back then, I didn't know what made those sounds. They just sounded incredible. So you
1: were just... Absorbing stuff kind of through osmosis. Like, yeah,
2: I mean as everything as... he brought home for some reason I just vibed with. I mean I I was obsessed with R- Peter Gabriel's Security album. Obsessed rhythm of the heat. Was Joc- your brother Maki. a musician as well? My brother was a singer, um, and he was kind of on a path to become an opera singer. Wow! But um, but he was really just a music fan, and he went to a school with a lot of. He, he went to school with Marcus Miller. So it, there was a lot of musicians in his class at Music and Art and um, a lot of really crazy, just the music at the time, obviously, when you heard something special, it, it was it was uh, widely renowned, if you will. It wasn't yeah. like today, like you won't, like people knew about those fusion jazz
1: records back in those days. Well, I'd say that the thing about the 70s and 80s, the time before MTV was you could actually be ugly and be a, a pop star <laughs> yeah i mean we were just talking about this you conversation to be good.
2: we were talking about uh both bruce hornsby and christopher cross two guys that couldn't get arrested once you had to make a video yeah you know these guys were making hit songs that were huge beautiful amazing songs but god were they bad to look at
1: so but but guess what you you hear it and you're like it there was, there was more of a uh meritocracy to the actual sure. songwriting and the performance el- element of it, absolutely. You know, what I mean, does does uh, a Milli Vanilli happen if there's no MTV? Probably not, right? Well, yeah, for a variety of reasons
2: too. You know, because I think the the mentality of even lip syncing and I mean, those guys didn't even sing on the songs. So, I but, mean, that, that's, but
1: that's but that's my point is yeah. that the you know, with the R and B group that actually made those songs, mm-hmm. would they have been yeah the the big hit? Yeah, I don't know,
2: maybe. You know, I think the music industry spent 20 or 30 years under a very, very big illusion. And that was that little kids, kids are 15 to 20 years old. I think the illusion is, is that they thought if they heard a song that they really liked, but then saw somebody singing it that they didn't like, that they wouldn't like the song anymore. And I think modern times has proved that to be wrong. Mm -hmm. I think modern times has shown that the connection that a great song makes to a person outweighs their superficial interpretation of the band. Now, there are certain people, of course, that will be turned off if they see a a song that they're just like, oh my God, this is like the most beautiful love song ever. And then they see somebody that's not, they're not attracted to singing it, maybe it ruins it a little bit. But I think for the most part, what the modern, you know, I mean, people forget that it's so, you know, it's interesting in such a, for such a long time, the first time you would ever hear a song ever would be the radio right that's how that's how the world worked then all of a sudden it became the first time you would see your song would be on MTV so then all of a sudden that became the paradigm and you had to look a certain way just to be able to get past the first 7 seconds of a video and then that went away and now we're back to oh the fr- the first th- and not only do we do we not see the artists most of the time nowadays but there's no way to listen to music nowadays from the middle because when you used to listen on the radio you could turn on a song and it could be two minutes into it and then you'd hear the last two minutes of the song but now if you're streaming if you're listening on spotify it always starts from the beginning there's never a chance what
1: do you think the what is that how does that factor into how you perceive i think it
2: i think it i think it it changed the depth of music i think as much as people talk about modern music being bad it changes the idea that now you, you, you can talk to somebody and actually discuss something from the beginning of the conversation in every song. I think back in the days, when you were talking about mid the 80s and 90s, you were so worried about making sure the chorus happened so many times that if somebody turned on the radio and you were in the middle of the song, they would only be a few seconds before the chorus came on again. And that makes, them, that makes the songs themselves less deep I mean, you know, you think about a song, think about songs by Pink Floyd and the depth to those songs, but you realize, oh, they all take a minute to get going. They all take a second to kind of set the mood and make something special. In the 80s we lost that. In the 80s everything went to got to get to the chorus, got to have the beginning interesting, got to have this da 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 da. I feel
1: like it's been like that. And it's and it's and it's also about you know, you look at the length of songs that they've gotten shorter and they've gotten, you know, it's it's The 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 actual
2: truth is that they haven't, because I just read an article by the guy who invented Yahoo! Launch, and he wrote a thing. He wrote a book called uh, Music 2.0, and he was talking about that now because of streaming services, everybody's trying to make longer songs, and I'll tell you why. So if you're Octane, right, or if you're uh, Spotify, and you're paying on a per song basis, if each song is being paid the same amount of royalty per song and you have a song that's three minutes long, or you have a song that's four minutes long, over the course of hundreds of thousands of songs, that extra minute actually affects the bottom line in terms of how much money you're paying out per song. Mm -hmm. So they started actually encouraging, they sent out memos, like secret memos to labels. I mean, this is like real stuff, where they were encouraging people to stay no shorter than four minutes. Because when you get a three and a half minute or a 320 song, all of a sudden they have to pay out more because they, they have to fill up more time per day. So there was actually people encouraging the industry as streaming became more important and it's still a thing today. That's why these trap songs that get a million spins you know, a day, these trap songs have 40 second, 50 second intros. These things take forever to get going. And I'll even argue on the rock side that um, go clock in the beginning of Highly Suspect's Human. It's 40 seconds before anybody sings. These 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 things are happening more and more. Um, I think the difference is it still applies to new
1: artists. Well, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. I was like, if you're a brand new band, that will be a re. If your song is four minutes and 30 seconds, that will be a reason why. They say we're not going to play the track,
2: but that's radio, not Spotify,
1: yes, or Octane. Well, because of course, those,
2: those guys have their own rules. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's crazy. I don't know. I think the music industry is in an interesting place. I think there's way more chatter and way more noise from bad artists, but I also think that um, the audience is is still kind of foolproof you can't really trick them anymore
1: yeah well well, but back in the day you could have one good song and then sell a record for 17.99 and sell like 10 million copies of some you know what was that that band um uh the crash test dummies Uh uh-huh that i'm not saying they're a bad band i really don't know i just know 10 million people went out and bought that record because that one one song. song right and who knows if the record was good
2: yeah i mean they were an interesting band to say the least but i think the uh you know, but the, but that's just part of the spectrum because you always have those bands that are the one hit wonders that go on to do an entire career under the radar based on the one giant song that they had, or you have these artists that come back out. But I I think the shelf life of the modern song is really the best indicator of where the music industry is. And you know, when I was a kid and I listened to Metallica's and Justice For All, I listened to it pretty much for a whole year. Like I listened to that record on a regular basis for like a year. I don't think, and, and, I'll, and I'll say this, when Bring Me the Horizon came out, I was a big, well, not when they came out, but when they did their... Uh, what, San Paternal. When they did the San Paternal album, I became a Bring Me the Horizon fan. Me too. And I listened to it a bazillion times. But I was also done after two and a half months. I couldn't listen to it again past then. Well,
1: that I don't think that's necessarily fair to compare your... your... Adolescent self to your adult self and how you consume. It's not it's not really fair And I think there's also an important cultural thing to bring up, you know me growing up in uh, The urban world and seeing how there was like a song would be hot for three months and that community Moves on to the next thing whereas the rock world we're still listening to uh, you know She shook me all night long 40 years later and holding on to these things, like these relics, and we're all about maintaining. It's like you turn on the radio; they're still gonna be playing Paradise City. So we're gonna be playing Enter Sandman. Whereas the hip hop world, the pop world, they are done, done on to the next one. That's true, and, and that's a, that's a very cultural thing I'd say about kind of like American black culture is like they're like, what's the what's the new dance? Right. What's the new clothing they're wearing? What's the new? Song? It's always about boom, boom, boom. Which I'm, I don't relate to as much because I feel like it's a little it has a disposable quality to it and a very trendy quality to it which i'm not is not really my personality but i think there's two ways to look at it i think it could be disposable
2: and trendy i also think the other way to look at it is is the the the, the urban universe and the pop universe is making commentary on the moment right and one of my beefs with the modern rock industry is that we tend to try and re-say the same thing, but just color it a different way. Yeah. We're just saying the same thing over and over again. Like I have, when I do my sessions with, with. Uh any band that comes into the studio, I always make the same jokes. I said, all right, well, we're never going to say, save me for myself. We're never going to write a song called Cold, and we're never going to do anything that has to do with uh, ashes or, you know, scars. And it's funny, I'm joking, but it, it, but the fact is, is there's so many bands that come into newer rock with the mentality of, I'm okay with the idea of just kind of doing what everyone else did in a slightly different way. And then you just kind of end up as this, this, you know, it it ends up being disposable to me because it's like, well, okay, I've heard this 50 times. And the problem for younger artists, I mean, for younger listeners, is, is because radio is still playing Alice in Chains and Nirvana and Enter Sandman and Godsmack, and since they're all still playing those channels, the audience isn't unaware you know, the, the, people like to argue with me, well, no one listens to Linkin Park, who's 15. And I'm like, I'm not sure if they're listening in a market in the Midwest where the radio station plays Linkin Park. I don't, Park, I that's don't the think thing.
1: I don't think they're if you look at their streaming numbers and their YouTube numbers would be what they were if they weren't if young people weren't finding out and right. discovering them.
2: Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. So I think in that regard, we end up in a sort of, it's disposable in a different way. I get the you know, obviously the shelf life of a modern pop or rap song is so short because a lot of it is so based on language that's only cool for that year. You know, like no one's going to say on fleek anymore, <laughs> you know, because that's just not cool anymore. So It wasn't cool when it started.
1: <laughs> I would have to agree. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's all good. Um what was your entry point so I so for those who you know I probably will talk about this in the in the intro that you're the frontman guitar player songwriter for a band called Ra mm-hmm. um that like I said we kind of were en- entering the musical sphere around the same time so I saw your got your name everywhere on tours and on the radio and and, and stuff, but it was such kind of of the moment. I'll like mention it to people, like Ron. They're like, I don't know, that sounds kind of familiar now, right? But at the time, uh, you guys had a pretty big impact. How did that all come about?
2: I was the classic bedroom rocker. Yeah you know, making demos in my bedroom and trying w- to work.
1: Where you you? You're a... born in
2: Queens, okay. New York. Well, born in the Bronx, raised in Queens, moved to Queens when I was three, Jackson Heights, Queens. From the streets. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the middle, the middle class, church. but yeah. Uh, but you know, I figured out how to record in my bedroom at a really young age and started getting really obsessed. Um, I had this weird relationship with singing. So I said before that I sang at five. Um, and then when I got into junior high school, I was asked to be part of the glee club. And I did it for one year and I didn't like it because, and this is going to sound so stupid and self-centered, but I got called for every solo. So they would call me for every solo and I actually felt like people were starting to not like me because of it. So I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like the feeling of like, oh, oh yeah, he's going to get, he's going to do the solo again or whatever. So I started saying no to doing the solos and then eventually just left I just stopped singing in front of people in the middle of junior high school. And then I went to high school, to music and art high school, but I actually went for painting. Mm -hmm. I didn't go for, for art at all, and I didn't sing at all the entire time I was in high school until senior year. And I had a teacher named Miss K who weirdly, and this is such a weird thing to put in, but she was murdered by her son like a couple of years ago. That's a weird thing to say.
1: Holy shit.
2: Yeah, but she was this English teacher who was really, really cool, and we had a final test a final uh, project on Hamlet. And I was obsessed with Shakespeare. I had worked at the Shakespeare Theater in Central Park for since I was 14 until I was 22. And she asked to do this um, final project. Everybody paired up except me and this random long-haired dude. And I was like, well, all right. And I met him and he's like, well, what do you do? And he's like, well, I play guitar. And I was like, well, all right, well, come over to my house, and we'll, we both lived in Queens. We're like, all right, just come over to my house, and we'll, we'll, we'll figure something out. So he comes over to his house, he brings the guitar. I'm like, what would you bring the guitar for? He's like, well, why don't we just do a song? I was like, it's like how do you know I even sing? He's like, and he's like, no, 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 you told me you sang. I was like, it did? I didn't remember saying that. But anyway, we wrote a song about Hamlet. So we performed it in class for the final. We did it that night. Teacher calls me the next day up and says, everybody requested that you sing the song again. So we sang it the th- again the second day.
1: Was it like an acoustic? And it was an acoustic
2: singing? nylon string guitar singing a song that I stole from a Prince melody based on the story of Hamlet, which I knew really well because I'd seen the play a bazillion times. So just cut to me having the worst grades in high school. And on the day of graduation, instead of going to graduation, I walked into my first professional recording studio to record my first demo. And my brother paid for it. And that was that. And I never looked back, just did music ever since. Wait a second. So what was the, the demo was with this same guitar player? Same guitar player. I was in a band with him for 10 years. One of the songs on the Raw record uh, called Sky was uh, a song I wrote with Nandi, who was the, the, other, the other guy. He actually taught me how to play guitar. Yeah. Mean, he really taught me how to play guitar. He taught me how to approach the guitar. Um, he, was a, he was a uniquely talented guy with an extremely unique voice. But he wasn't
1: in Raw. No, there was no rock. So you, you were doing music and learning your craft and being involved for 10 years, even before. Well, the band that
2: I started with him had the worst name ever. Okay. It was called Cross of Snow. which That's not that
1: bad. It's not that bad.
2: It was Did based on a book. There's a book about false faith. And the, I can't remember the author, but it was about cross so you, of snow. Yeah, you can't have that faith.
1: Actually, I think that's actually kind of cool.
2: Okay, well, I'll, I'll take it. I liked it at the time. Yeah, so it's uh, kind of poetic, and and, and, you, and the whole thing know. was like this kind of like you can't have faith in a cross of snow, meaning that it would melt. So I was like, okay, fine, I like that. So cross of snow was the name of the band. Um, I did that from the early nineties
1: until ninety. Right, so I got I got to ask the question though. What, Go ahead. what, kind, what kind of hairstyles are we talking about here? We told Jerry curls. It's bad. Afros. It's, it's dreads. It's, it's, what do we got? It's
2: absolutely straightened hair, okay, in a ponytail, and I would braid the ponytail, and we called it the pony penis because it really just looked like a dick sticking out of the back of my head. Okay, so that was that was the look, and I started balding when I was like 24
1: years old. So were you holding on? Were you kind of like bald with like the ponytail? No, it wasn't.
2: It, I, the second, I started balding. I shaved it all okay. off. Okay, I've, been, I've You're been smart. I've been shaved head for a long time, and then um, so anyway, long story short. I end up meeting a mentor, a guy who was a hedge fund trader. He ends up buying me basically an entire recording studio and letting me live in his house in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is crazy to say. Um, I learned how to record there. I learned how to play drums there. I learned how to do everything that I ended up doing all the time there. And um, ultimately wrote to Call My Name there. How? uh, So who is this mentor? So my sister started dating my sister one of my sisters I have two sisters one of them's an actress one of well they're both actresses but one's a Broadway actress the other one's an actress in films.
1: So that's I right, his his sister for all you guys don't know was in fucking Total Recall. Yeah, Molina. Suck on that shit, all right? <laughs> so, um I'm obsessed with Total Recall so just you know. Not, oh, also good. she's in Falling Down, which is an underrated film. Also
2: man, uh, man on fire. She's mad as well. Man
1: on fire. All right, she's a legend. So that's why I'm really this is just a big ploy for me to like get her on the podcast, so. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, we can probably
2: make that happen, she yeah. lives out here.
1: Oh, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be such a nerd.
2: Um, but the, uh, I guess the, the, the moral story is that my sister, my, my Broadway sister started dating this hedge fund trader, a guy named Rob Jones. And he was uh, you know, kind of like a frustrated musician, had a Steinway in his living room, you know, millions of dollars, whatever. Gave me a check for thir- $13,000. It
1: really was a million dollar Steinway?
2: Uh, no. The Steinway was one hundred and forty grand, I think. Okay. But he gave me a check for thirteen thousand dollars and said, "Can you build me a studio?" And I was like, "Okay." I didn't know what I was doing. I bought him an eight at and a Mackie twenty four by eight console.
1: When it came to studio stuff, were you all self trained? totally,
2: absolutely under the radar. Figured it all out on my own, completely in the beginning. Later on, when I got in the room with legendary dudes. It was just sponge time, but but in terms of th- at that point I hadn't really done anything with anybody too famous or you know like engineers. I knew it kind of by trial and error, and I knew what microphones I wanted. But I mean you know like I said I bought an at and a Mackie 24x8 from Sweetwater Sound in 1994 when nobody knew who Sweetwater was. Um, anyway, so I get this stuff going on, and it progresses, and ultimately he ends up spending 180 thousand dollars on gear. That basically I just use by myself in his place in his house. I lived there for three years. He had an eight thousand square foot house. He was a single dude, retired at thirty four years old, and uh, and ultimately we went back to work and got married and had kids and stuff like that. But I was out of there before then. But yeah, I recorded Do you my the, the 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 demo for Do You Call My Name, which was Ra's biggest song. Um, I recorded that there, um, and. Played drums on it. Did the whole thing by myself, you know, just kind of like put it together. And that uh, that was literally two days before was the day that I figured out what I had to do to get a record deal. And it was 1998, and I was just like, I can't do what I've been doing because what I was doing was like half rap rock, half this, half that, Lincoln, you know. Half this was thing. as
1: a solo artist? no nope,
2: as Cross of Snow. Cross Rod right didn't exist yet. Okay. So I do this thing in 98. I come up with this song. I end up doing this record. I get signed to a label called Adel, which was a German-owned indie label but had done a distribution deal with Sony. And at the end of the process, we recorded one song called Bring Me the Gun. At the end of it, uh, the guy that was the a guy there synced it with a movie called Carrie, which was the sequel to Carrie. It was Carrie 2, The Rage. Mm-hmm. They made me change the lyric to bring me the rage, got synced to the film. That was my first real thing that ever came in, out. It was actually in the, the movie. It's the end credits of the movie. Holy shit. So that was the first thing we ever did. And after that, I kind of like, I was like, okay, I'm relentless now. I'm not gonna do anything else but. And I went to, um, you know, I went to California. I met all these people and came back and I had to give them a name because it was gonna be on the, uh, on the movie. They're like, you need a name for the band. And I was like, well, I don't want Cross the Snow. What is it gonna be? What is it gonna be? And I have this thing that still carries through today in, in all the raw music where I referenced the sun because Sting, who's my favorite artist, wrote a bazillion songs about the moon, Walking on the Moon, Nothing Like the Sun, you know, all these things that are all references to the moon. So I wanted to be like Sting. So I wrote all these songs that have these sun references. So in thinking about it, I was like, fine. So who's, you know, the sun god is Ra." I had never heard of a band called Ra. I thought it was cool because it was super short because I always thought U2 was the best band name ever. (laughs) So I was like, Ra is perfect. I said Ra without knowing whether it was cleared or not. And they made that the thing and it was Ra ever since.
1: And then, you know, when we- Did you have a band?
2: Yeah, you know, it was kind of like a rotating crew of people, I mean, uh, Scooter Warner, is a really, really well-known session drummer. He played with Cyndi Lauper, plays uh, with a million other people. Um, he was my drummer. I did auditions back in the day when things were like fancy pants. And uh, in like 96, 97, we had like this development deal. It was all craziness. But um, he ended up auditioning and got the part instantly. I was like, this is the guy. He, he, he can hit hard. He got the funkiest beat ever, like just crazy. Um, he ended up recording a lot with me. And then he stayed in the band until 2005. So he got signed with the band, the whole thing. I mean, it was, I actually played drums on, on half of the first raw record. And I did that to punish him because at that time he had left to join another band. And then I said, no, you can't play on the rest of the record. I'm playing on the rest of the record, you know, because that's always a good thing to do
1: when you're the leader of a band is to- Hey, Dave Grohl did that shit. <laughs> yeah, well, Dave Grohl was a drummer. I, I was a, I was a wannabe drummer. I heard you're pretty, I, I think I've seen you play drums. You're a pretty good drummer. I can play, yeah, I'm just not Scooter, but yeah. Yeah, uh, so you had an EP, right? before the actual universal So th-
2: I'm going to try and tell the, the intelligible st- version of the story. So I, re- I record the album with Adel, that, that, that label from Germany. I take those masters illegally and start selling them in Boston because of, of off of interest that we got from WAAF. We sell 20,000 CDs in a month.
1: How? Just like... On the streets? Newberry or?
2: Comics. I did a deal with a distribution company in were you Arizona. Playing, were you playing? We were local? playing all in the Northeast, playing everywhere in, in, in um, uh, New Hampshire and, and Massachusetts and Connecticut. And we were getting really, really, really a lot of attention. What there. song were they playing? Do that, you call my name? That same, same So thing. that song goes to AAF, becomes the number one song on the radio station. Mind you, I'm still, I don't own these masters. Sony still owns these masters. So Nick Ferrara, my attorney, basically says, "Look, we've got to get these masters." So my ex-wife's mom gives me fifteen thousand dollars, cashier's check. I negotiate it with this guy named Ron Berman, or Ron Urban, I think his name was at um, Sony, to meet him downtown. I go downtown. I give this guy a check for fifteen thousand bucks. I take my car. I drive up north, to. Universal Studios to Universal Records, Universal Republic on Fifty Seventh Street. Walk in and sign a for an eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars record deal. Fifteen minutes later, having bought my masters for fifteen. 000. You already had that on the table. I knew what the deal was. Everything was ready to go, but I, I didn't own the masters that they were going to sell. I mean, literally, this was like within twenty minutes. They were twenty minutes apart. I had to get this guy to sign this piece of paper, or everything fell apart. Yeah. And he signed it. I walked up there and gave him the piece of paper, gave him the thing. I was unsigned technically for 20 minutes and then did that deal. And then, you know, the rest of it was a lesson in timing. And, you know, the the band's trajectory was something that ended up ultimately teaching me so many lessons. I mean, we all have those stories of, well, once you get signed, then it's like a whole other universe. But the stuff that I learned about how to be in a band what the business is you know the benefits and the the negatives of getting a big record deal. well that's
1: what i'm saying so you're talking about almost a million dollar record deal for a brand new band that's right. has, has two album deal but yeah two, but you you have some traction things are, are picking up but i can't imagine the type of expectations that must come with a price tag. they thought
2: that. they had found another god smack they were acting like they had gotten another lightning in the bottle type Band that was because we went to number one in three months in, in WAF. They just assumed that the rest of the country would be able to do that. But what mm-hmm. ended up happening is is that most of the Northeast and the East Coast had been playing the song <clears throat> for weeks, prior to the rest of the country even getting to hear the song. So it was one of those things where, oh no!" The East Coast has been playing the song for too long. So now the West Coast is getting on it, but the numbers never got high enough to get us past number get us above 10 on the Active Rock chart. Now 10 back then was 1200 spins. You 1200 spins today, you're number 3 or number 4. But back then it was 10 was not 1200 spins and we couldn't crack it because the stations down the East Coast were already moving on to our second single before the those stations on the West Coast were actually getting on it.
1: Yeah. It became kind of a thing. So I'm gonna cut in here real quick so we actually have to do a part two of this conversation because sahaj is a busy successful man and (laughs) that's one way to describe it listen man listen what's what's busy part of business this motherfucker's doing business all right like (laughs) like, with, with the way the music industry changes a lot of producers that can't get no business. So, you know, think about how many people went out of business, you know? Yeah. So anyway, so he had to uh, abbreviate our last bit of the conversation. So we're going to do, this is actually the part two of of the original conversation. This time
2: is better. We're naked. There's a lot of steam. Listen, I mean, this is the
1: way we do it. We put on 300. We got inspired. That's right. We're like, we want to. I'm dirty and greasy. That's what what we're going for. It's wonderful. So in, in the last part of our conversation, you were talking about how the single, was picking up uh, nationally while it was kind of winding down in the Northeast. Yeah, it's one of those things where
2: you know, you know when you're trying to develop your band as, as an artist or something, you have this goal of getting a record deal and, holy crap, maybe even getting on a major label. And you, you, you really just think that once that's achieved... There, there's no other obstacles. You've, you've gotten to the promised land, and everything is just going to fall into place. And what you realize is that really you've just gotten to the largest, most elaborate landmine field that you've ever seen in your life. Why do you use uh, the term landmine? Because
1: it, it doesn't take very much to derail the progress. Well, but landmine almost sounds like it's deliberately set up for you to fail. Do you feel that way? Um... I don't think I think the industry has become comfortable
2: with living in a land a minefield, in the sense that they're not really there. You know, you know. Let's get back to just the idea of getting assigned to a major label or getting signed to any record company or to even to a small label. The idea is most A and R guys, most people in that industry, they don't look at an artist, and the first question that pops into their head is not "I should sign this person." Their first question is why shouldn't I sign this person? The first thing they look at is, with what's the problem here? What is the big obstacle? Is there something wrong with that? Or is that... No, it's good business. Yeah. It's good business, but when you're an emotional musician, and the, obviously the logical part of it that's stupid is, is that most of these A&R guys are guessing yeah. what's going to work and now, what isn't going to work.
1: Now, as someone... See, this is an experience you have that I don't have, right? Right. I never got to experience the major label world. Do you... Can you draw a, a fine distinction between that a way an A&R person over there might behave or kind of their philosophy on it? And someone at like Central Media, is there a big difference? Well, it, it,
2: at, the best way to describe it is, is Universal Republic as a company just had much longer fingers. So they were looking, you know, essentially they were a research company. They were looking at data streams back before there was Facebook and MySpace, and all of this other stuff. They were looking at very specific data streams. I remember getting reports as our record would come out, and they would get very excited if we outsold Godsmack in a market that Godsmack was traditionally good in. They they would give you these numbers. What other heavy bands were on Universal at that time? At that time, really, there was Flaw.
1: Oh, they played the other day, actually.
2: Yeah, there was Flaw. And Flaw was already on the way out when we walked in, at least from a corporate standpoint. They, were, they had one more record coming out, but the label wasn't excited about it, which was something I should have read in the tea leaves. But um, well, you guys,
1: I felt were a little more radio friendly than Flaw, right? Absolutely,
2: yeah. But, you, but the thing I was getting at when I, by making that statement was they were excited about Flaw at some point. And then by the time this other record was coming out, that David Botrell, who I thought was amazing, who did Anima and all this incredible stuff, who had done that, I was like, okay, well, this record's going to do well without me listening to it. And when I listened to it, I wasn't really blown away. But the, um, the label just had already written it off. And just the idea of the label having written off an album before it came out was something I probably should have paid a little bit more attention to. Yeah.
1: Did you guys have that that cliche thing where you have one team that signed you and then within like a year it was like a completely different A&R and marketing and and all those people?
2: I actually had, in in a weird way, the worst version of that because I wasn't signed by an A&R guy. I was signed by the president of the label. Isn't that good, though? You would think that's good. But the idea is since he's the president of the label, he's obviously not focused on one artist. Yeah. You know, you, what you think is, is the A&R guy is going to have two or three bands that he's assigned and he has to kind of like follow through. That's why they had multiple A&R guys there. So the downsides of having the president sign you is one is that his focus is not completely on you unless you're the star of the whole label. And then the other thing that's bad about it is you get an A&R guy assigned to you. Yeah, And when you get a guy who didn't sign you, there's no passion, who's assigned to you. And the guy that we got was a guy named Tom McKay. And Tom McKay was at Universal Republic because he had been friends with uh, Monty Lippman prior to the label becoming formed. And also he signed Three Doors Down. So he had that was his baby band. You know, that was the, the focus of his universe. I liked Tom in terms of conversation, but I could tell that he was just going by the numbers and making sure that everything was handled you know on a paperwork level with us it was really no one there fighting for us you know um there was a product manager who uh was really great his name was josh nikotra i'm still friends with him today he actually works for jack johnson um on jack johnson's label but um the the dynamic of going into a building like that and and the terminology, they, they used to always say the same things. They used to say, well, people here in the building, people here in the building either like it or people here in the building don't like it or no one in the building, no one in the building. And then you started realizing basically anything that was going on, everyone had to be excited about
1: or things wouldn't happen. Which is interesting is that almost sounds more like an indie type of situation. Like I've shopped stuff to Metal Blade, for example, and... You know, Brian will hit me back, and they'll be like, "Oh man, you know, I, I like it, but I, you know, let me send it around." And if the vibe isn't good collectively, then they don't they don't move forward. Yeah,
2: I mean, that's every label I've ever heard of, except for Wind Up. The only label that didn't have that mentality to me was basically why if Alan Meltzer and Diana Meltzer liked it, they didn't care if anybody else liked it. Yeah. They were into it. Um, and I got an offer from them. And I got an offer from Universal. Universal, it was the the essence of a bidding war without it really being a classic bidding war. Because um, for whatever reason, I felt more compelled to do a deal with Universal Republic than I did with Windup. Even though Windup was killing it back then with Creed and Seether and Evanescence and all that stuff. So, you know, that part of the industry was very, very uh, different
1: back then. So the record comes out. Okay. Record comes out. Two thousand two. Two thousand two. Kind of, I would say if you look at that year, that's probably a bad year, actually, to kind of come out with the style you guys are coming out with. Um given the kind of total context, because I, I don't I I feel like, and you tell me if I'm wrong, you mentioned a band like Flaw. I think you guys kind of got thrown into that kind of more new metal side of the radio world. And that was just when that stuff was considered to be like, uh, like on the verge of being passe. Do you know what I'm saying? For a new band, right? So like if an establishment, if Mudvayne puts a record out in 2002, they're probably fine because they were already right. kind of established. Um, do you think I'm being accurate in that? Or, or?
2: I think there's a couple of factors. I think um, the reshaping of the way record companies was, were selling was already starting then. Things were already starting, you know, Napster and, and, and LimeWire, LiveWire, LimeWire, LimeWire, were, that's where I did a lot of my stealing. Yeah. I mean, it was, (laughs) it, I was doing it too. And it was becoming pretty, you know, gnarly for them. They were, they were, we were having discussions with the label about 30% drops in sales for rock bands because of the fact that rock bands were typically things that sold CDs more than other things which sold singles. Um, the other part of that equation really had nothing to do with the timing and had a lot to do with, um, because I, I would argue that 2003 was the hugest year for System of a Down, and, and they were enormous. They, they went multi-platinum but with my, that record. That, but that
1: was my exact point, was that they were already established. They had come out in 98, 97, so they, had already, they were already System of a Down by then. I'm, t- I'm talking about launching a new band. For, to launch, the first, a, but the uh,
2: toxicity that album. Yeah, that's two thousand two thousand one. Right, so that's what I'm talking about because I think that yeah, the first
1: album with spiders on it wasn't a hit record. Yes, it was. Oh, it was. Yeah, it sold millions okay. of copies. It took two years for them to break it, but it did break. Okay, um, and they were. And the thing is, I think so. You so if you think about music, especially the world we come from in term of, terms of um, these like subgenres mm-hmm. that. You come along with like a class of bands, right? And w- especially when something burns really hot, that means it usually kind of fades really mm-hmm. fast too. And the way to survive that is by distinguishing yourself as being apart from that. And what they did, especially on those, that double record, was kind of, by that point, you're like, yeah, they're not really a new metal band. They're kind of just their own yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what all the, all the bands that survived... Uh, did that Incubus? They went kind of you know, like light, light rock. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Lincoln Park kind of carved their their own like little. Every, everyone kind of found a way. I mean, Papa Roach dropped all the hip hop and just went you know kind of became just a or hard just a rock, hard band, rock yeah. almost like screamo kind of right. stuff they were doing. You know, so I'm talking about within the placement of of kind of just ju- just the culture. Um, how? So at that point, well, let I, me say the second thing, go because ahead, I think the
2: second thing is, is even more important than the first one, because the timing and, the, and all of that stuff was one thing. But um, our actual record, our actual record deal and the amount of money committed to that deal was our biggest burden, yeah. because having eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the hole before we even sold a record basically made us um, uh, a poor investment. So okay. the problem was, is that when we couldn't crack the top five with Do You Call My Name, and we got to top ten, and the reason, again, talking about what we were talking about before, the reason for it was very, very weird. It wasn't a normal circumstance because a lot of bands at the time weren't breaking at radio on their own by themselves without anybody helping them. So the fact that we had gotten four months of airplay in the Northeast prior to even getting a record deal actually was part of the problem. There was a guy who was in charge of, of, of the active rock radio division for radio in, in Universal. His first name was Howard. I don't remember his last name. But um, he made some really poor decisions too in pursuing uh, how to deal with this issue of of, of the single being, you know, being played on
1: WAAF for ten weeks before anyone else was even into it. Now, what? Now, do you feel like this record didn't really have a great two or three single to really? Because theoretically, right? If you had more it's, M- it's a hard, ammo,
2: honestly, it's a hard question to argue, It's a hard question to answer because if you could sell twenty thousand CDs in one town from one radio station in forty days. It's very hard to argue that you shouldn't be that you should be that it, that it you shouldn't be able to replicate that. Oh, I can make a great argument that it, that's.
1: I think. Well, well I, I think obviously America- the labels
2: the labels perspective was, if they can do that there, if right. we can even do half that kind of business across the country, we're gonna do we're gonna go gold, in a year. Yeah. And mind you, we did two hundred thousand records, yeah. so they weren't a hundred percent wrong. Well, the I- issues that that developed. Um, had a lot to do with management yeah had a lot to do that with the idea that we were given tour support and our tour support was really you know we went straight to a giant bus with a with a tra- with a trailer and a and a crew and a whole nine yards right off the bat now what kind of tours were you talking about are you guys getting the our major our first tour that we ever did ever i mean we went from not having shows at all like not playing, like other than the the four times a month we were playing when we were trying to build our story in in um, Massachusetts, we went from that to opening for Seether when Fine Again was climbing the charts, and um, I mean I w- I went from doing four shows a month to doing six shows a week. Yeah, we only had Sundays off. Now, were you guys a good A good live band
1: at this point. You Um, feel feel confident.
2: Sonically, we destroyed most people because I, I, you know, my singing skills were good. I was not a child; I was old already. (laughs) You know, so I wasn't singing like this kid. I was singing. I was thirty-two years old on a major label, and so the singing part of it was amazing. Scooter Warner was a drummer. He's one of the best drummers I've ever known in my entire life. You guys were pro. The, the, The sound and I underlined the sound I, I, of it I see where this was is going. amazing um, I also played seven string guitar and had a pedal board and had to change tones every verse chorus I was a little tied down for the first year and a half um, I would watch our videos and the shows and people would be into it but I felt very stiff yeah I felt like I was Kind of just like locked in this weird position, holding this guitar, not really being able to do anything, singing super high the entire time, always stressed out about being able to sing Rectifier a second because it's such a high song and all this other stuff. Um, it was stressful for me. I hated touring. I never slept well. Um, I was married on to that me-
1: giant bus. He couldn't sleep.
2: I was ma- <laughs> I, well. You know, I did all the I did all the dumb things that guys do. You know, first of all I was married to my first wife at that time, and everyone else in the in the band wanted the bank chicks. So I didn't have much choice. And you know, there's always that cliche of the singer taking the back lounge. Well, I took the back lounge and I used to make sure that we got a tour manager who could get us a bus where the back, back the back lounge locked. Because my problem was is that one time back then bands had forums remember they had the band forum Mm -hmm. on your website and people would post stuff i loved it and one time a girl said uh that she sat on my bunk and talked to me for like two hours and posted it on there and my my ex-wife lost it like literally was just like why did you have a girl in your bunk i was like i don't have a bunk." well by the way i'm in the back lounge don't you know
1: if you post it on the internet it's true
2: yeah, and obviously <laughs> nothing. But you know, she was young, and she was claiming that she was in a room with me and another guy in the band, and it was just like this whole thing. And it's like, look, this is this is being blown completely out of control. So, so my whole thing was like, I'm going to be in the back lounge. I'm going to lock the door. I'm going to put a humidifier in there because I was always sick, and. The, you know, Another thing you don't realize when you're an idiot in your first tour bus is that the back lounge is the worst place to sleep because it's right over the axle. So it's the bumpiest place in the, in the whole bus, every bump you feel, not to mention it's tied to a 5,000-pound trailer, and that's jerking it around all over the place. So I wouldn't sleep. I would wait for the bus to stop at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and then I would sleep. And I had to sing at radio stations at six in the morning. And I sounded do like... Do like
1: acoustic sets and stuff. It was awful.
2: I, I hated every second of it because I was never relaxed. I was never comfortable. Yeah. I didn't drink. I didn't bang chicks. I didn't do anything fun. And it's, all I
1: did was stress out about singing. That's almost the exact same story as Jesse Leach from Killswitch about why he quit. He was newly married, missed his wife, um, was having vocal problems, also not drinking, not really getting into that, that side of things. And he was demoralized and he quit the band yeah you know so i and I, I think that's also a common theme with bands that go from not playing a lot, then get a deal and then go from playing not playing a lot to playing all the time is that you're not really road worn yet right um I mean God forbid wasn't, but we kind of got to get our feet wet in a very, very modest way we had to, we got to just go play in front of fifty people and suck right and work our way up to actually be able to play a, a theater yeah. and actually hold it down. And it took us a year on the road before we were like, yeah, we're pretty good. But it, we, were, you know, we had tons of shitty shows and had to learn how to stand on stage and learn how yeah. to be a performer and grab the crowd and kind of elevate. And that. And, that the, and I always say this, you can't learn that in a rehearsal room. No, nope. You can only learn it on the road. And yeah, I mean, you know, our first year we did 200 shows, which is a lot.
2: Yeah. Our first year we did two hundred shows. And big shows, right? You guys were doing big tours. Well, we won our first tour was Cedar, second tour was Stone Sour, and that was when Bother broke. So the band was basically new to people. Um, and that was a really fun tour. And then, you know, one of the things that I was sort of proud of for a really long time, but then I kind of realized the stupidity of it was is that we were on tour support for the first four or five months, but we were getting we were we became such a good live band. And the music was really, really well respected so that we actually were a, a strong draw in a lot of markets. So we got off tour support, but we stayed on a bus like we were able to pay our way in, by having. I mean, we only in the history of RAW, which started in 2002 and the last tour was in 2014. Uh, we've only been in a van once, We had a couple of small two weekers where we did them in big RVs. But other than that, we've always been in buses and, and made money, And too. still made money. So, yeah. yeah. It wasn't too bad because, <clears throat> you know, I always felt like the only thing that was great about the band. Well, well certainly after two or three years, the show became great. Yeah. Then I was just completely comfortable, and I didn't care. I, you know, I did the classic. You know, my guitar was a little too high in the beginning, and slowly, slowly, slowly. And by, by the time I was, by the time we were, you know, f- basically done, it was down by my knees. But I was killing it, playing seven string and singing, and I didn't even care. I'd throw the guitar and play. Part, you know, did you learn naked. to have
1: start having fun on the road? So,
2: the the shows were always fun. After a couple of years of, of finally figuring out, okay, well, I can sing without. Suffering and I can make my warm-up half an hour and not feel like I'm just doing this all the time Then what it be the parts that I started to love was yeah I love the shows, but I loved after the show. I loved hanging out with everybody I used to jump off the front of the stage to walk to the merch table almost every night just to drag everyone with me and The, the sitting there and talking to people on I, I never used to talk to people in the first year because I was like if I talk to people for two Hours, I'm not gonna have a voice tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. but after a while. I just didn't <clears throat> care and then slowly but surely, a little bottle of crown made its way into, the, into <laughs> my life. And I was able to relax and enjoy myself. I ended up getting, you know, divorced and separated. And when I was separated, I, I tried really hard to become the whore I wasn't mm-hmm. able to be. How'd that work sucked, out? I sucked at that. Yeah. I tried, though. I really tried. I went out and found, like, the hottest chicks I could immediately and uh, did what I did. And then I was just kind of bored. But I think the first three years of touring, of s- literally stepping over people, we can curse on this, right? You can say motherfucker, cock, shit, pussy. Okay. Scumbag.
1: So, dick literally,
2: to- literally walking over people fucking to get to the bathroom on the bus. Like, not even, like, one pair. Or like, two or three pairs of people on the floor in the bus, banging in the fucking walkway just to take a whiz. That became normal to me. So, once I was actually kind of let out of the... Why are the- they fucking the bunk? I, w- I would not tolerate that. I think they were just so drunk it just ends up there. But the... Once the cage was open and I was able to do that,
1: the idea of
2: it was way cooler than the reality of it. And then I was just kind of like, meh. And I ended up in a relationship, and a relationship. And then I ended up meeting my, my buddy. I was separated in the beginning of 2005. I ended up meeting my current wife by the end of 2005.
1: Wow. Well... So you guys put out another record, and I read there's actually some good history on Wikipedia, and I don't know if it's if it is accurate, but it was saying something that essentially the second r- record for Universal got caught up in development hell. Is this true? Well, here's here's where
2: hindsight becomes twenty 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 twenty, because if I had listened to Avery, Avery Littman was the president of it still is the president of uh, Universal Republic. And he was trying to give me hints, but they're not allowed to really tell you what to do. That's that tortious interference thing. What's that? So they're, they're re- there's a legal thing that, like, a, like, like a, a music executive can't tell you who you should use as a manager.
1: Oh, it's, yeah, it's like a conflict of interest. Right,
2: it's called tortious interference. Yeah. And so it kind of blurs its way into other aspects of what they do. They're not going to tell you what to do, but they like, I think it's in your best interest too. So we have $90,000 left in our four hundred and twenty-five or $430,000 budget for our second album.
1: Now, and- so you're getting these big budgets. Was all of that actually going in, most of that going into to pay for the actual producer? Or were you able to like pocket that or put it towards the band or so what i did first because we had 425 i think which is nice so the, we had 425 the for the days, second guys. album
2: <laughs> well it wasn't the good old days in 2004 2005 because the people were that you know people were already complaining about how active rock stations were closing down well, they
1: complained but that 425 yeah come well, on man but we knew that was a little scary so that's eight god forbid records <laughs>
2: so, so what i wanted to do was um i said to them look give me 40 grand I'm gonna go and buy a bunch of high-end gear because I fancied myself a uh, producer engineer. I had produced the first record. I recorded everything myself, you know. Um, I said, all right, I'm gonna go and just, I wanna be able to write these songs, but record them in a way that if they sound, you know, if they get used, we can use them. And I don't want them to be like, oh, well, the demo quality isn't good enough. So let's just give me 40 grand. In the back of my head, and had, again, this is had I, had I trusted myself. In the back of my head, I said, you know what? You should just do the record for 50 grand, spend 20 grand on mixing it, be all in at 60 grand, and use the rest of it to promote and market it. Use the $250,000 to promote and market it, pay the, pay the band, whatever we had to do, get a bus, anything. I had that inclination and then I started working on the album, and then all the anxiety of every time I would turn on a song, they'd be like, "Oh, we really like this." And in the next couple of days, well, you know, we passed it around, and people kind of think it's this, and blah 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 blah. And then these those, are demos; they're really well recorded demos. You know, like re- basically recorded in a way that ultimately ended up being the album. Because I, I a lot of those songs, you know, it, it, it's a, if there's a lesson for people listening to this, one of the things is is your instincts are almost always right. Yeah. So. The gut. At the end of the, you know, writing the first album, I'd written a song called Fallen Angels. And I knew that Fallen Angels was going to be the next single on the next album before i had ever had a second album. I knew it was that. Even when we were on tour with Corey, I was telling Corey in the bus, so I was like, yeah, Fallen Angels is the next single, and then we'll go from there. So I wrote this, I wrote 36 songs by myself, out of which I have to pick, you know, twelve or thirteen. Was that common for you?
1: Thirty six. That seems like over a year. Op, a, that's man. I ain't, I wrote thirty six songs in my life. Okay, well I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna qualify that with thirty six
2: songs, but not all of them were completed. Okay. You know, thirty six sketches. I, okay. Some of them were completed. Some of them were more like chorus, verse, chorus sketches. Um, but the the moral of the story, really, which is painful, is that. Because I was kind of self engineering and self producing these songs, I was limited. I just didn't know as much as I know now, like how could you right so but i'm in my thirties, so i'm thinking to myself i'm a good i'm a good engineer i'm a good producer I can make this happen my original here's an, here's another one of those sad stories we have so many sad stories in raw well, we have also the curse of Ra I'll get into that in a second but the the sad story of Ra is There was an engineer who was my favorite, I met him in 1996, a guy named Dave Schiffman. And Dave Schiffman was Rick Rubin's in-house engineer guy. He he, he engineered a bunch of Rage Against the Machine stuff, he did Audio Slave, he did System of a Down, he did all of these, basically every rock record that I listened to and I was like, Jesus, how did they make it sound like that? Dave was the guy who who recorded it. So my plan was with my $425,000 that I was gonna produce it and I was gonna have Dave co-produce it with me and have him engineer. Now, my wife at the time, first wife, had a thyroid condition and was going through some physical problems, and we lived in New Jersey. Dave was out here in Los Angeles, and I called him up, and I said, hey, Dave, I want to pay you your full rate, 1,000 bucks a day. I want you to come out and co-produce this and engineer me. I want to do this together. We're going to do this record, blah, 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 And he was like, oh, I really like this idea. This is great, da, 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 but... I just adopted a child, and I can't leave Los Angeles. And I'm like, well, my wife has this weird condition going on. I can't leave New Jersey. So instead of saying who's the next best guy on the list, I literally just said, all right, so then I have to do this myself. And that was a huge, that's one of those pivotal moments when you look back on it, and you're like, whoa, if I had just called Joe Borezi or if I had called... Brendan O'Brien, you know, the, the thing that the label never told me was that all the guys that I loved, like Brendan O'Brien and Terry Date and all those guys, were actually available to me. In my budget, I could actually get those guys. I could have had Andy Wallace mix my record with the budget that I had. But no one ever said that to me. Why would
1: someone need to say it to you? I mean, $400,000 $400, is $400,000. What do you think they cost $1.5 million to, make, to do an album in do you 2004? Know what, do you know what
2: Seven Dust paid... Andy Wallace to mix home, no seventy five thousand dollars. Do you know when that record came out? Ninety nine. Okay, that's a different. That's a different era. But 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 no one. But that's only four years earlier than what I'm talking about. I know, but guess what? You had seventy five thousand dollars to have Andy Wallace mix it. But also, I had a band that needed money, and I had to live. When you start doing the math with four guys in the band, and you're paying them fifty thousand a beats and then you got two hundred seventy five thousand, that's already two seventy five out the window.
1: Well, no, no, I I know there's that, but that's what I'm saying is it's a trade-off, right? So you have to figure out what is more important. Do these, Absolutely. Guys, do these guys need X, Y, Z or do we need Andy Wallace? I'm right. saying you could trust but me. No,
2: but again, I had bad advice because it was never, I'm telling you, regardless of the bubble that I lived in, I think these guys were so afraid to even tell me to use other people in the beginning that, because ultimately, they did. Ultimately, that's how I met Bob Marlette, who I work with all the time now. Because we got to the point where I turned in the record, and they were like, well, we don't have singles. We need more songs. And I was like, oh, okay. And then they were like, we want you to work with Bob. Oh, because he had done Cedar and Evanescence. And I was like, okay, well, I'm down to do that. I'll meet him. And we, we, we got along fine, and we had a good time. And we wrote three songs. And I think those three songs cost 150000 bucks because he flew all the way. was that
1: extra on top? Like no, you went this is just it's- taking our money. Jesus,
2: we ended up flying him out, putting him up in a great hotel, going to water studios in Hoboken, which I'm sure you know. I don't know that
1: shit, man. That's, you don't know water studios in Hoboken? Don't look at I'm not that big time, like you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I have that 400,000, man. <laughs> all right, all right. So it was, four, it was this fancy Neve
2: studio in, in, Hobo, in Hoboken, and I, wanna, I lived I, in right, New Jersey. I want to
1: go. Yeah, it was really
2: it nice. But it was, you know, $1,500 a day, and we were there for like a month and a half. What's it Just to get a few singles? You have to understand. This is how people were still thinking the old way. So Bob came out for like four, he came out for a week of pre-production or two weeks of pre-production before we even went into the studio for two weeks. And we're recording everything, vocals and everything there. So it's, it's just become like this giant production for these three songs. And we turn them in, and the label's like, well, I don't know. Da, 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 da. You took a month and a half to do three songs. I mean, a month. It was it was definitely a solid thirty days because there was two weeks of writing. We probably wrote eight songs and did the best three, um, but that didn't work. It just wasn't you know. It, it wasn't that Bob was the wrong guy. It was it was just that Bob was the wrong guy. So okay, I don't know what that means. But I love that. Well, it means that I love him to death and I think he's fantastic and he's really really cool. But. Roz thing was was more exotic more Peter Gabriel more sting oh he was trying to bring it more towards he like was a just, right, normal he, he active was rock a either guy he was an heaven essence guy he was like you know chunky guitars basic rhythms and I was like look I want stuff to be weird I want like odd you know I need the guitars to sound like Andy Summers not to sound like you know John 5 yeah so um anyway we make those songs doesn't work out did you did, did you know that
1: before you turned them in
2: I didn't, like, I didn't love them. Yeah. I didn't think I had singles. I ended up using one, I got a sync from one of those songs that paid a lot of money, so that was cool. Yeah. But um, we ended up flying, they ended up flying me out to Los Angeles, because I threw caution to the wind. I was like, I don't care if you're sick, I don't care what's going on, I gotta get these songs. And did two more songs with Bob, one of which we turned in and I said to the label, "I'm like, this is the song, I think this is amazing. And Aunt Avery was like, I love this song. And everybody was, I love this song. And then Monty heard it. And he was like, "I don't like the song." Who's Monty? Was Avery's brother? He's like, "I don't like the song." So the, 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 the air went let out, and um, it was basically like September of 2004 when I got a phone call from my manager saying, "Hey, there's not a, there's not a lot of support for this record." So you know, I, at this point, I don't think Monty wants to put the record out. Now there's still $90,000 left in the budget, but no one's. I'm, you know, I'm devastated. I'm crushed. I've been working on this thing for over a year and a half. So we get to, I'm still looking for, I think I have so many friends at radio. I made friends with all these radio programmers. So I go to uh, uh, KUPD in Phoenix, Arizona, give them a song called The Only One. And I say, here's the song. Do me a favor. Put it in your cage match thing. It wins for three weeks straight. I send all the data, and I, call, and I call up Avery, and I'm like, hey, here's the story, da 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 I did this song, and I'm putting it through, and everybody's loving it, and they're all voting for it, and da-da-da-da-da. And Avery's response is just, well, you know, we have to be careful. And I was like, oh, how come? And he was like, well, you know, at this point, it's like the things where we have to be careful where we put the money, and he's trying to basically say that people aren't into the band at the label. you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com
1: and I'll see you there.
2: At the same time, I met a guy who took over for that old Howard that I was talking about and the guy's name was Dave Downey and he was, a, he was in charge of All Access, which was a, a radio website type thingy. I think I remember that. Yeah, so he was in charge of that. He ended up coming in to Universal Republic as the head of rock radio. He listens to everything that they have. He takes the raw CD that is unreleased, walks into Avery's office, puts it on his desk, and he says, this is the best thing you have. And Avery was like, huh? He's like, this is the best rock record you have. I don't know why you're not doing anything with it. So with that in mind... Can can I cut you off real
1: quick? Sure. Maybe you know this, or maybe you can just give um, give me a theory about this. But what is the... Impetus behind a major label shelving a record. Do they, is it the whole idea is that they spend so much money when they put a record out that it's actually more cost effective for them not to put it out? Yeah,
2: you answered your own question. Basically, it, what I found but out. But why can't
1: they put a record out and then just not do anything? Like, aren't they going to make more money by just putting. No, because they have
2: to pay. Back in the day, you had to, call, you had to pay what was called a call up fee. So the co-op fee goes to the retailers. Yeah. So for every single, and I'm talking about every single CD, you had to pay two bucks to Best Buy to put it on their shelves. It's called a co-op fee. So if you sent out 100,000, 50,000 CDs, you already spent $50,000 just to get it in the stores, not including the cost of manufacturing, the artwork, the cost of the, the band, the, all of that other stuff. Then you tag on top of that the uh the actual costs of um uh radio promotion
1: and marketing and advertising but but, but my point was if you if you didn't believe in the record you could not don't promote it just put it out but you have a band just sold two hundred thousand records you're at least gonna sell 50 that's better than not putting it i just i just don't understand well essentially that's what they did so let me finish the story So what ended up
2: happening is Dave Downey comes in, makes a big stink, and convinces Avery that something's got to happen with this band. Now, Avery is the one sole guy at the company who even gives a crap, but he's like, look, the band's going to have to save themselves somehow. So we build this entire scheme with Josh Nakotra, who was our product manager, and we build this whole thing where the band is going to go out and build a buzz. We're going to go out and tour, and we're going to build a buzz for this new record ourselves. Is this before the album comes out or while it's early out? This is way before the album's coming okay. out. This is... this is The record came out in late June. Uh, this is February, March. So we're going out on the road. We're starting to do these shows. And I'm hitting up every radio programmer. And I'm hitting them up hard. And everybody is loving it. We're doing... We're killing our draw. We're making money. We're doing these great shows. The band is as good as it's ever been. We had a We changed drummers. And... Um... There seemed to be like activity. Now, what ends up going on is we're doing all this stuff. We're building a little bit of a buzz. Avery's giving us little bits of money to have the artwork done, to have this done, to have that done. And all of a sudden, I get a phone call in April of uh, 2005 from Avery Lipman, who says, Hey, Sahaj, I just got off the phone with Monty. He wants. To, he just. We just got an order for forty-five thousand copies of your next record from Best Buy. But and that's just from Buzz. That's just from Buzz. Yeah. They, we started sending out the one sheet and started showing all the markets we were playing and what the radio stations were doing. So we were doing it the proper way, and we built this little thing. And the guy says, "I want to put the record out. I want the record to come out on Universal now." Um, <sighs> So now we're in the mode of, now, okay, I got to back up because right before that, right when that conversation where they said, oh, they don't want to put the record out comes up, when they have that part of the conversation, Avery calls me into the office, he sits me down and he says, hey, you've got $90,000 left in your budget. I can set you up with Fontana, which was a distribution company they had just purchased. I can set you up with Fontana, and that's a decent chunk of money for you to just promote your record yourself. Now in my mind at the time, I was still crushed, and I'm thinking that's a defeatist attitude. I don't want to not be on a major label. I'm this, I'm that, I'm too good to be on some bullshit, I'm going to throw myself out there, I'm going to put this out myself, how ridiculous. With ninety thousand dollars, what
1: am I going to do with that? But what, but what does that mean? Put it out yourself.
2: That he would have they, given they, me my own. He he would have given me my own imprint. I would have had my own label on Fontana Distribution, and I would have been given an entire staff from Fontana to actually do the retail aspect. Of now, this. at that
1: point, are you off Universal Records? Completely? No,
2: that's this is still before
1: the conversation that I
2: just said about. Well, well Monty that's Litman. actually
1: not that uncommon. I know some major labels that would actually kind of do like a guerrilla release where they put out a band on an indie to build cred, even yeah, though they were sure. on. And so it would give the, from the street point of view, it would look like they're this up and coming band. But when, it, when in fact, this is what bullet for my Valentine, when they were, I think they were on Sony, they got basically were put out through trust Kill records, which was like all the underground hardcore metalcore bands were on. And it, you know, j- just to like give it that, Feel of like yeah we're a we're an up and coming band even though they had a million dollars behind them you know? right well
2: they weren't doing that with us because this is already post
1: an album yeah it's kind of you weird. know
2: this is a, we were already post an album that we did two hundred thousand copies of so a little strange yeah so the idea wasn't really to build cred or anything it was just the idea he was actually looking out for me and I didn't know it yeah again with that whole thing of like him just being very kind of cryptic with me and not just saying this you no know, so hot do this I'm telling you this is what you should do. Because had I taken the $90,000 and just put the record out myself, even if I sold half as much as I sold through the label, I still would have sold 60,000 records, which at that point would have netted about $6 or $7 an album, which is a lot of money. So anyway, long story. So now we cut back to the point where it's early uh, 2005. We've now been given the green light. Monty wants to put the record out. We've got 45,000 orders from Best Buy alone. So they say, we're going to ship 60,000 copies, blah, 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 blah. Everybody's all of a sudden, now this all this activity. And Dave Downey, who was our champion at radio, was like, hey, you've only got one song to be their single, and it's the best song on the album by far, Fallen Angels. So none of the songs I did with Bob, none of the songs that I tried to write after the fact, literally the song that I wrote. A month after the first album and said was going to be the lead single for the next album, turns out to be the lead single for the next album. So he he goes off and he starts doing the radio campaign. And I'm all back, you know, I'm back. I'm back on my major label. We're gonna do this whole thing and da da I start touring. I'm actually separated at this point by May of uh, two thousand and five. I'm separated from my ex-wife. Um, but we're still kind of talking, still sorting it out. But um, the, I, it's just kind of crazy. So we start working this album. Meanwhile, we get about, we get to the mid-20s on the active, char, active rock chart. Oh, 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 oh I, I forget the most crazy part. So let's talk about The Curse of Raw. Mm-hmm. So the first part of The Curse of Raw, this is all about the second album, which is called Duality. The first thing that happens is we ship out 60,000 copies. First week opens up. I get a phone call the day, first day, that it comes out. Avery says, Sahaj, we have a problem. There's a digital glitch in the first 40 seconds of the album on the CD. It's the manufacturer's fault. They're going to fix it. But we had to pull all of the CDs out of Best Buy. Wow. So, because Best Buy won't sell a faulty CD. Everyone well, else offered to replace the CD for free, if anybody cared. It wasn't a big deal. It was literally a little time skip yeah. in the clean guitar in the beginning of Fallen Angels. And they said, like, if you buy it and you don't like it, you can return it, and we'll give you a good one a week later, because we're going to get new yeah. ones in. And but Best Buy would not sell a faulty CD. So no, all of that disappeared. Didn't, all the sales at Best Buy didn't hit the first week. The first week, we sell 8,700 CDs which even back then Not was bad. respectable, yeah. put us in the top 100. I think we were 80, 85, somewhere in that range. But the difference between 85 and actually being in the top 40 was only 3,000 CDs. So the second week when Best Buy comes in and we get the sales numbers, we did 8,700, basically the same numbers two weeks in so a row. So you probably would have
1: did like like 14 or something. We
2: would have done 13 or 14,000 yeah. was the estimate, which would have put us in the top 40, which would have changed our entire profile. The narrative, yeah. Everything would have changed. So just that one little skip in the beginning of Fallen Angels changed the way we were perceived on that album. So then we're working the active rock radio campaign. Dave Downey has been given a small budget, but a functional budget. Not too small, not too big, but functional. He's complaining about it. He needs more money, but he's getting traction with it. We're in the mid-20s. So right when we're about number 25 or 26, something bananas happens. Now, at first, you get excited, but this is the curse of raw again. So on the album, I did a cover of Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic by the police. It's like a rock version of it. The hot AC station in Cincinnati decides to play the song and the phones light up. It's bananas. They're, they've never gotten a reaction. Like they're talk. they're calling me directly from the radio station. I remember the guy's name, the, 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 the the DJ that was dealing with it. And he's like, oh my God, we're playing this song. We played it So he said, we played it in this thing. We got the reaction. The first week, they played it six times. The second week, they spun it 18 times. The third week, they spun it 36 times. By four weeks, it was in what they call power rotation between 65 and 70 times, which is double in active rock because in active rock, you have to play more music. You still have ACDC and all that other stuff, like you said earlier in the interview. So you, you top out at 30, 40 spins in an active rock station, but we're in the 70s now. We're, we're beating Mariah Carey. At one and, station. At one station. We're beating Mariah Carey and... So and, it's like a pop station. And, yeah, and Hot see. and Kelly Clarkson and Pink. We're smashing them. So hold the phone. Doug Morris, who's the owner of Universal Music Group, the whole thing is the head of it. He has a, He calls a meeting about that song and he says we've got a smash on our hands here we've got to take all the resources that we have right now on their active rock campaign and shift it to this song so dave downey who's now cracking the mid to 20s and doing good has his entire budget pulled from him at like 25 26 and now they're focused on this. And all of a sudden, in Honolulu, of all weird places, of Honolulu, we're getting 50, 60 spins again on this song. It's blowing up. Oh, we got it. We're building this story. Slowly but surely, two things emerge. One is the single isn't selling. And the reason the single isn't selling is people actually think it's Sting. <laughs> they're like, oh, they're just playing the song. There's a rock version of every little thing she does is magic. And it's the police or it's Sting doing it by himself. Do you, so
1: do you think that's partially because of your voice? Like yeah. you just sound a little no, too I mean, much I did like the, them?
2: I did the cover because I love the police and that's where I got my style and all my other stuff. But we, we actually were able to ascertain that police album sales spiked in all the markets. That we were having this song. <laughs> wow. Then the second thing that happened is we started getting those little calls to be like, oh, why don't you show up at the radio station and do a set? We were like, we'll do an acoustic set and we'll include the song. So we show up. I'm actually playing with Natasha Bedingfield. And we have to do our set. It's got like, do you call my name? in <laughs> It's got all these hard rock songs. Here's this mid-30s. Bald dude sitting there singing this song that all these 15 year old girls are loving, but they're just completely glazed over for the rest of the set and they don't know what to make of me. And they're like, you know, it's like, well, so I get I get another call. Well, we have an imaging problem. It's like, yeah, you have an imaging problem. Of course you do. So it starts to falter. So now, instead of working the track that had been already doing well, I call up Avery. I'm like, Avery, you got to get Dave back on track here. you got to give him his money. He's working a song. It's working. He's like, ah, you can't. And I'm like, what do you mean? So now the big reveal comes that goes back to your statement before. There's a guy at Universal Records. His name is Mel LeWinter. He's the accountant. He's the financial guy. He's looking at our book. What's going in, what's going out. He was the one that, Avery, that Monty had to go to to get approval to put our record out. Monty basically goes to him and Mel's like, okay, you can spend this much, but you can't spend any more. That's it. You spend any more than that, we're going to lose our shirts. There's no way we're going to, we're not going to see money from this band anyway. We're, two, we're a million and a half in a hole anyway. That's all from both records. That's from both records, because even with the first record selling 200000 right, at, at $6 a record, let's say that's what they put in their pocket roughly after everything else, even say $5 a record, but at 200000 it's only a million bucks. So if we spent 850000 just to get the band, and we spent a million dollars, we only made a million dollars, you know, they spend a half million on probably promo for both records. So there's just, there's no money to be made. Yeah. Mind you, another thing that I didn't know about, they had just signed another band for a $200,000-ish, somewhere in that range deal, and it was this band called 10 Years. And they were already tracking Wasteland to be a number one active rock song, which it was. So they basically, if you want a, a visual on how they think, wherever there's a fire wherever something spikes up and has a little fire, they have a hose full of money and they just start shooting it at that. Wherever it is. If, if it's 10 years, all the money goes there. It's like a dog chasing cars. That's a
1: kind of picture.
2: Yeah. And, and what ends up happening is, is it goes, translates directly from 10 years to Hinder because Get Stoned comes out and Get Stoned is the setup album for Lutz of an Angel. So they just... We become very, very, very unnecessary. So by January of 2006... Um, that's actually the time where I was talking before about getting radio stations to test another record. I was trying to get them another single and we were testing really good and that's when Avery was like, look, it's basically over. And I was like really bummed out. To his credit, and I love the guy, to his credit, he still offered me an imprint on Fontana. Now, I didn't have any money. I had to go raise the money, but I ended up getting investors and putting out a record via Fontana, sold 27,000 copies of it, but made every penny. Yeah. Much different, totally different model. Plus the market, the active rock market is already
1: in the shitter. It's already taking a dump. So we're in 2007, 2008. Yeah, I mean, that, that's another thing I think about that time that I don't know if you've thought about this or I'm sure you have, that I think it was also just a, a packed field in many ways, I think there was a lot going on, not only at your label but just overall. Especially, in... I just think that. Oh, I have to imagine, just in general, that world is just very competitive, and it's like how many, how much room is there, you know, at any one time? Well, for, I like to point it out now
2: with retros. You know, looking at it from a 2018 perspective, and it's like the bands that are relevant in the genre are the same fucking bands. A lot of them, yeah. I mean. I mean, there are, there are new bands, but you know. yeah, but the new bands come and go. There's, there hasn't been a band that's come and that has stayed, other than Five Finger, from my perspective. That's the only band to me that has sustained itself beyond a year or two. Mm-hmm. Maybe nothing more will be the next one. But you know, two albums in, I don't know what they're going to do the next time out. I love the band, but you know, how, are they going to be
1: able to stay relevant for another album? Who knows? Well, I, it's one of the things I, that you know. Now I'm in a in a band that has a active rock mm-hmm. hit. More, more so, um, and I know nothing about this world, but but I guess one of my outside criticisms from it is that once you become that kind of band, you become beholden to that, and if you don't have a more kind of dedicated following beyond the radio, then it's like then literally your fate of your existence begins and ends with radio. Yeah, well, that sounds stressful. It, it, it is. It's terribly stressful,
2: but but but. But, you know, I mean, you're 100% correct because bands like Five Finger and Avenged Sevenfold and all of these other bands, their radio success is, me- is actually a reflection of their non-radio success. The fact that they're able to build an, uh, an entire movement around what it is that they're doing is almost what forces radio to have to play it. Yeah, I There mean, were hits, yeah. obviously there were hits involved, and it took that to crack the door open. I mean, I remember seeing Five Finger in 2006 and Fort Wayne, Indiana, opening for Mudvayne. And, you know, I just thought it was another loud band. I didn't really think anything of it at the time. I'd played with Motor a bunch of times. I knew Ivan back in the day. But I, you know, I, 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 I had already moved on mentally anyway. And once we hit in 2006, 2007, 2008, the raw thing is, is more of like, a little bit of like musical jerk off where I can kind of just do whatever I wanted
1: while I was producing other artists. So yeah, so that, that's really one of the key things I want to talk about is your kind of second career. And I don't know if this is something you were doing simultaneously as far as producing and, and writing with, with other bands. But when you and I met, that's the capacity in which we right. met was you were producing and writing and also performing a lot on the Maids Hall record. How did that end up kind of supplanting uh raw as kind of the, the main uh career path it was just that i mean Ra by the Ra- end
2: of by the end of two thousand five and the beginning of two thousand and six, I was already trying to be a producer. I wasn't quite sure exactly how I was going to go about finding artists, but um one thing that happened, and maybe this is the opposite of the curse of Ra because I feel like this was the the fun part of it was. At one point, I believe it was the beginning of February 2006, I sat down at my computer, I went on MySpace, there were 55,000 bands on the MySpace list and everybody had already cherry-picked the first hundred of them. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna start listening to bands from the back. I went to the 55,000th band and I started backwards and I started listening you and You couldn't just start from 100 to 200. <laughs> no, nope. I went to fi- 55,000. And the fifth band that I clicked on was this band from Florida called Madeline. And it, it was just instantaneous. I just heard a lot of music. I was like, these guys are musical. Like what's going on with them? So I emailed the, the MySpace page, got a response from one of the guys. They were kids, 18, 19, all this stuff. Um, I flew down to Florida and I met them and I ended up um, moving down there temporarily and like living in, a, in their rehearsal space to produce demos with them. And it was going like everything we did, everybody loved, like literally every single song, the newest songs, everyone was like, this is great. This is great. Slowly but surely, the, the band a little bit started to deteriorate in terms of its interpersonal relationships, but um, as a result we ended up, well, they ended up um, meeting another producer-singer, guy named Kevin Rudolph, who ended up doing this huge pop song called Let It Rock. And um, through that, they met another guy who, uh, his name is Jay Cash, and he ended up being uh, a super, like, idea hook, songwriter type guy. And um, through those, through two of the guys in the band, they ended up moving out here to be with Kevin and to work with Cash. Cash ended up working with Dr. Luke. And then Cash now is one of the biggest writers, producers on the planet. Um, these guys now work with him. And that was my foray into the pop universe. Like, that was like the universe that I was like, well, I want to, I wanna, you know, cultivate the pop side. Because the band I was talking about, by the way, was a pop band. It wasn't a rock band, really. I mean, they were a band with drummer and stuff like that. But they were really a pop band. It was a... Almost like the killers, but more bubbly. Um, and then the rock stuff, you know, I started getting uh, doing these little bands here and there. In 2007, I met a band in Fort Wayne called
1: Downstate. When did you get to LA? 2010. Okay. What so, was was that for the industry and kind of just to be closer or have? I always wanted to live in LA. My
2: brother and sister lived here. You know, they're in the movie industry. They've been here for a very long time. I always liked coming to L.A. I used to say it was funny because the water is different. <laughs> so like when I would get it, I would take a shower in my sister's house and it wasn't, you know, it was, it was hard water. And I just, I don't know why I felt cleaner. <laughs> it was just the weirdest thing ever. And I had hair at the time and I always felt like my hair looked better here than it did anywhere else. The sun is, the sun is a little different. Everything's is a little different. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I got really uh, into California at a young age because my sister was always here. Um, I always wanted to move here eventually. But when I met my current wife, I ended up moving to Fort Wayne, Indiana for a year and a half. Then I ended up moving to Florida for that band. They ended up moving out here in 2010, so I moved out here in 2010. But I had a bunch of rock connections and stuff like that. Um, From the rock standpoint, it was always kind of a little bit on, like, I would just get called. People would just call me because they either liked the raw stuff or they wanted to uh, do something you know it was mostly because of the raw stuff back in those days and i found this one band downstate and we ended up they were like the, they were like the quintessential goober fun young kids super young and they were like the perfect like jock rock band like literally stupid jock rock fun stuff and we ended up uh doing 7 WWE wrestling themes with them holy shit yeah i ended up you know we, we did one song that got the attention of Jim Johnston at, at WWE and we ended up doing a whole bunch of stuff um and that kind of set off other things, I did a lot with the WWE as a response, as a, uh, out of, uh, as a, you know, or well, anyway, so the, the, what I'm trying to get at is the, um, the movement into the rock universe when I came into LA was terrible. I got here and I had really no idea what it was going to take to make money here. I was still producing bands from the middle of the country. They would drive out to L.A., but I didn't really have a business plan, really. I ended up getting a producer manager who didn't know what she was doing, and that didn't work out. And I was just trying to, like, re- I was literally reaching all over the place. It took me about three years to get into
1: a groove. Can I, can I ask you a question, though? Sure. In that transition of being frontman... Uh, well, I'm still doing raw records at the time. You're still doing raw records, but from now, there is clearly a, there is a priority am I wrong about that that you've kind sure. of kind of fallen more into that um role even though on a lot of the records like May Tall for example you basically are a de facto writer and yeah, de, and de facto vocalist the, now
2: the new one is just going to be a, a high show
1: and but, no but and you listen to the record it's not difficult to listen to that record and then listen to a raw record and see the yeah, the, 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 absolutely. the connection uh, musically so obviously you kind of get to uh, scratch that itch mm-hmm. a, a bit but early on when that transition was, was going on, was that a intentional thing or was it something that just kind of happened? So I love my current wife an enormous
2: amount. I, when I, I, I heard met, you wrote a
1: whole record for her.
2: When, yeah, I did. So when I met her, she was just the funniest, hottest girl I'd ever met at that time. It, just, it didn't matter, as much touring as I'd done, as many beautiful women as, as I had met, the time I met her, I just was like, this is the most beautiful girl I've ever seen in my whole life. I don't even, and and I was in my mid 30s. So, really, it was a lust thing in the beginning. I was just completely attracted to her in a crazy way. And who knew if it was going to go anywhere? I really didn't have anything. The phone calls that came a month after meeting her, where I'd spend four hours on the phone with her just laughing, were the. Indication that this is going to be something I'm going to fight for. And I really fought for her. I spent a ton of money on her. I did everything I had to do to convince this young... She was much younger than me. I had to convince this 21-year-old that I was the guy. And she actually broke up with me after six months and devastated me. And then we ended up getting back together later on. But and this is in Indiana? This is, I, this is me flying to Indiana, driving to Indiana, getting to Indiana, and no matter how, whichever way I had to get there.
1: I mean, this seems like to be... One of the only things I would get someone to really, really vehemently get their way to Indiana. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no. Yeah,
1: that's literally
2: the only reason to go to Indiana. Sar- to about to, Indi- Indiana people. To, to a certain degree. They brought us
1: to Jackson's, so, you know. Yeah.
2: So, anyway, this, what, this, what happens is I go on tour in 2006. I sign a deal with... Well, I actually don't sign a deal. I end up getting screwed over by a guy named Dan Catullo in this record company called Cement Shoes that actually which is the which is the time I actually meet Tommy Vex so we'll get to my Tommy Vex story but um, but Dave Chavari and El Nino are signed to this label and I'm on tour with them and blah 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 so we go it's the end of uh, 2006 I'm on tour with El Nino ridiculous tour I am in Tampa Florida I get off of the bus I'm talking to my wife my future wife girlfriend at the time and she says to me, I'm not interested in being, someone, being with someone who's not going to be home. Coming straight out. Yeah. I'm not interested. In, if you want to be with me, I'm not interested in you touring all the time. And I just. Did she re- snapped. Did she go and was like. No, she didn't snap. Okay. But Did I had. point?
1: Did she give you the finger? She like wasn't. It was
2: just on the phone. So she okay. might have actually done all of that. Okay. I wouldn't know. But she basically kind of drew a line in the sand. And without hesitating, I said, okay, I won't do it anymore. And that was basically it. And I. This motherfucker was caught up. <laughs> yeah. It, it was a decision that I made. Uh, whoops. <laughs> I, made it, I made it a little bit. Uh, it wasn't that I made it prematurely, I made it a little unconsciously. Um, I was okay with the idea of not touring because I really didn't like touring that much. Yeah. Like, I hated the traveling, all that bullshit. But anyway, long story short, to answer your question, that was the impetus. So then I was like, okay, well, now I'm going to have to find a way to create and be creative as a producer in a way that satisfies me as an artist. So it kind of worked, but then I ended up doing a record in 2008, and then I ended up doing a record in 2012, you know, and I'm going to do a record at the end of this year. But, um... So for all
1: for all intents and purposes, you are raw.
2: Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, That was nice not convincing. Ben... Ben wrote songs in the band. Ben was the other guitar player. He wrote some songs in the band, um, mostly riffs. PJ wrote a couple of things that were on the last album, and mostly riffs again. Um, I love those guys. Like, you know, I mean, touring at the end was actually really fun. Like, we were just brothers and having a good time, and we would do funny stuff, and we didn't really care about anything.
1: Well, I think that there's such a difference when the pressure is kinda off. Like oh, that. Yeah. That that pressure to like it has to be X. Or the expectations are, and especially when you get these these big uh, advances and major label, it's like, well if it's not a gold record, then it's might as well not exist. And, yeah. it, and that how can you really totally take in the joy of the doing if all the focus is on the results? And more importantly, I just
2: liked myself more. Yeah. Like I just was more watching, I was just way more like able to even on the last tour which i was way too fat to do but even on the last tour the best part of it was still the Getting off the stage and talking to people, but it was so much more like I knew these people. Like I'm seeing the faces from six years earlier. I'm like, I can't believe these people are still coming to these shows. You know, after no promotion, no album, no nothing, we just show up, and they're like, they're still, still a, coming.
1: There's still a fan base there. Yeah, and-
2: I mean, the records sell. That's the crazy thing. I put out a record nowadays with no promotion, it still does fifteen thousand
1: copies. Wow, which is a decent number by today's standards. Yeah, man, it's it's, it's hard. It's hard to move move units. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, since part one of this conversation, I saw this quote from I think Matt Bellamy from Muse, okay, and he was talking oh, about, about guitars. Yes, and he's an he, idiot. Well, he's definitely not an idiot. He's actually. I think dude. that I think the statement was designed. Well, let's uh, let's, let's tell what the statement. So okay. he he essentially said that guitar is becoming more of a background instrument, and it's not. You know, that we are experiencing a shift where it is n- no longer going to be the dominant instrument. Now, I think he's right. And, and, here, and, here's, and here's why. And this is why, and I think history dictates that he is right. So if you go back to, you know, the 50s and basically before rock and roll, it was what? It was the piano, right? So this is Jerry Lee Lewis. This is Lil' Richard. This is, right, the piano. Duke Ellington right? people a piano player, right? Sure. <laughs> Fuck it up. Um, and then who 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 are the other big people? It's Louis Armstrong, it's Miles Davis, right? These were the lead instruments and guitar supplanted something else. So, history tells us that everyone but has their moment.
2: the counter-argument to that, of course, is, is I'm that saying we have 50 but,
1: fucking but years, that's I all gotta, I'm saying. I gotta finish this thing because
2: basically music has always been separated into three categories, right? So you have stringed instruments, you have horn instruments, and then you have percussive instruments. And when I say percussive, I don't mean drums, I mean uh, harp, piano, marimba, xylophone, all of those things are actually percussive instruments. It's a hammer hitting a string. And then you have drums, you have that kind of percussion, right? So those are the four categories. So if you go back to Mozart, and you go back to the beginning of time, the first instrument that was probably used to tell stories was probably something like a guitar. Because it was mobile, it was easy to use, and you could walk around. But does that depend on the, the culture? I mean... No, because every, every culture has a version of a guitar. Greek has the bazooki, the, the, the Arabs have the, the, um, the oud. Uh, there's, there's a version of a guitar, and the, Indian, the, the Indians have the sitar, the, the Chinese have the thing that sits down and looks like a pedal steel. Mm-hmm. It, everybody has a version of a guitar, right? We pluck a string and do that. So these, these instruments go back thousands of years. And the difference between them is subtle, sonically, right? So there's, no, you know, the difference between a, an actual guitar and a sitar, yes, they're drastic if you're a guitar player, but to the average person, it's not a huge difference. So in going through the history of music, yes, certain things have taken the forefront because they're lead instruments, and that's the issue with piano and saxophone. and The reason Miles Davis was was amazing, it wasn't because of the trumpet. It was because of Miles, because there were a million other trumpet players that we don't know about that lived in that time. It's the fact that he had a voice through the instrument that spoke to people in a certain way. And
1: because of the fact that... But it's also on the back end of the fact that jazz was the most popular form of music well, instrumental, for, for a time. instrumental music was the most form,
2: popular form of music. It wasn't necessarily just jazz, because you had, at the same time that you're talking about those times of jazz, you're also talking do have to, about... Do I have to Google this? You're talking about the 20s and 30s, no? Yeah, I mean, that was,
1: the, you know... Don't that's actually Mina before Miles. you but at the same time, you also had the pop, pop. No, I know, but what I'm but what I'm saying is he doesn't get that platform without jazz being the most popular form of music. Right, and that's techno- what I'm saying. Technology
2: has a lot to do with that because P- modern PA systems didn't exist until a certain time period. So once, until modern PA systems didn't existed, you weren't able to have a singer sing over an orchestra. Yeah. It just wasn't possible. You had opera singers, but that was a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. So the thing that 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 I feel is the, is the, the, the thing that, that um, removes the validity of that statement that he made is the idea that the lead instrument, whether it's a vocal, a trumpet, a clarinet, a saxophone, the lead instrument is the extension of the artist that it's attached to. right? So I can say that the guitar treatment, the way that Muse has traditionally treated guitar has always been as a texture. It's not really been used that much as a lead instrument, except for- You crazy. Se- well, I'm saying they play melodies with them, but it's only to support the the body of the song, which is vocal.
1: Their la- their album Drones, and I think that's the last one, is, it's their most recent record, and it's probably the most guitar heavy record they've ever okay. done. Um, I think they're a band, what, what separates them from almost, you know, what puts them in, a, they're more in a class like a band like Queen, where they do a lot of stuff, they'll have, a funk song on a the record, they'll have right. a classical song on a the record. They'll have an electronic song. So they've used the entire kind of uh, you know, toolbox mm-hmm. of music and say we can do anything. What he is talking about, I get what you're you're talking about big picture history, right? You're talking what I'm also civilization
2: saying, it, it, how guitar how guitar speaks to to an audience. So it's here's the thing, okay? He's let's talk- oh, let's no. I'm going to give you a different I'm going to give you the shittiest possible analogy right we're all experiencing uzi vert and migos am i and i'm just saying whether you're whether you're doing it voluntarily or (laughs) involuntarily it's involuntarily it's happening in the universe that you live in oh no i know i know and when you think about something like migos right and you think about wait a second we're talking about a song that's 130 bpm or 125 bpm it's halftime like that super slow and these guys are doing those
1: motherfuckers are goddamn terrible
2: well but the point is is that what the, what they're doing is they're simply indoctrinating a certain age group to a sound that that age group doesn't have the ability to go back and listen to there has always been a certain kind of goofy rap always there's always been the I, I remember the fat boys <laughs> well, the fat boys but I mean even like the ones that were crazy and just kind of like what's it remember, remember I saw Mace?
1: you couldn't understand anything Mace said yes, back in the day cause Mace was not good the only reason people ever give a fuck about Mace cause he was standing next to Puff Daddy on these hits no you know what it reminded me of Migos I was like these motherfuckers remind me of the damn yin yang twins okay there's a bunch of goofballs
2: well there it is but that's the point Is is that I think that The argument you can make for Migos is the fact that they're they're hitting the reset button for an entire generation of people that never listened to that old stuff. And that's the issue with guitar. Because when I listen to certain new songs, new rock songs that are guitar laden, let's say, um, I know where they're getting their ideas from. I know exactly what song they're pulling from. I know what two songs they're using to make that one riff. Yeah. I know exactly. You know, when I did the Star Set record with Dustin, Dustin coined me the Melody Database Police because there was literally nothing that he could think of that I didn't know where he got the, the, the basic
1: motivation well, you're from. you're a student. You're a student of that.: But also of, I'm
2: old. That's, well, that's more relevant. The fact is, is that I retain a lot of information and I have a history that goes back to the 80s. So the fact that I'm able to remember a Till Tuesday melody that is exactly like The weekend's melody, I know where he got it from. But, you know, I know the bass line and can't, I can't feel my face as a George Clinton bass line, but no 15-year-old kid has ever listened to George yeah, of Clinton. Of course, yeah. So that's my logic with guitar. Every time somebody says, well, this, this, guitar, this instrument can no longer be a feature instrument or cannot be the center course of new rock, it's ridiculous because there are literally kids now who don't know the feeling of listening to Injustice for All. They don't know the feeling of what that guitar tone used to do to us back in those days. Yeah. That, that can happen again. I, I, I even believe that to a certain extent what Kevin Cherko and Five Finger have done is They've just kind of cleared the way for the younger people to listen to all the basics of metal in a context where the songs sounded new that's all they did they didn't they didn't make it, the riffs in Five finger are not periphery riffs they're 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 basic metal riffs, but done with a certain production style and with a singer and melody line that contemporizes it mm-hmm.
1: I don't think that that goes away ever well it's it's not. All right, so it's not about it going away. What he is talking about is being at the forefront. So if you look, and, the, and the, the references he made is stuff I've looked at, and so have you, is you look at the top songs on Spotify, you look at the top songs on iTunes, and there's no, in the top 50, there's no rock music. There's no And the rock bands, I'm, I'm doing quote-unquote rock bands that are there, don't have fucking guitars. It's 21 Pilots. It's Imagine Dragons, it's Walk the Moon, it's uh, Portugal the Man, it's these band- bands that, like I said, that that where I almost put bands in 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 quotes. And then if you look at active rock world, you see everyone, even like like I call it the uh, you know it, it, whether I want to call it the Black keys vacation of rock or the. Imagine Dragonsification, is sure. they all have the whoa, oh, oh, right? Everyone has that. Of course. That new um, Foo Fighters record. Essentially, all the mid-range has been pulled out of the guitars. Even I look at my, my band, I think a big reason why uh, Bad Wolves Connected is that the guitar tone is kind of devoid of mid-range. It has that low kind of yeah, sub sure. gro- sub-growl. That connects more to, to younger crowds, and I think if you have that traditional sound, yes, your Metallica is going to sell a million records with that sound. But they're Metallica. I, what, what, what I'm seeing is, and what, where I agree with him is, he's saying at the very top, which is that's the playground Muses in. Not, they don't give a fuck about no Five Finger Death Punch. They don't right, a, right, right, right. They don't give a fuck about what Slayer's doing. Of course. They, the way they look at it, they are competing with Migos and Kendrick Lamar. Right. So if they're saying, hey, we're not getting a fucking call to the dance, then th- this is what's going on. And this is a band that plays fucking stadiums. Right. They're not an arena band, they're a stadium band. So despite how many records they sell, they can literally sell zero records on a new album and it won't matter. They're, that's how uh, cemented their career and legacy is. But there's that ego thing of saying, I kind of want to be relevant everywhere. Okay. You know, so so,
2: but let me give you again. I feel like when you look at it from that perspective, right? And because I do, I probably listen more to pop music than I don't listen to. Yeah. I th- I immediately think of all the exceptions to the rule. So I think of someone like Charlie but, Puth. But that's what we're not talking about. Exceptions. We're but, talking but, about but, broad but trends. But here's. But it There's is. There's always going to be exception. To every but listen. Rule. Listen. Let me finish my statement. Charlie Puth is a guy. Jazz chords on the stuff. Lots of guitar, lots of real bass, all of this stuff that feels very organic in his tracking. Now, that leads me to someone like Ellie Goulding, who has a lot of guitars in her stuff, which leads me to people like uh, Selena Gomez. Now, the guitars, they're all in there. There's tons of guitars in these songs. They're all reverbed out and weirded sound and all this other stuff, but the body of a lot of these tracks, I can point them out to you. You know, Selena Gomez just had a huge song with, um, I wish I could remember the, uh, I think his name is Migos, actually, but he's another DJ too, but the whole song is guitar. All right, but but it's side-chained and it's got a dance beat can, and it sounds can I, new. Can I give you the, the
1: reference though? Yeah, there were also keyboard players uh, employed in bands 20 years ago. You know what that motherfucker is now? On the track and unemployed. Well, yeah. And so if your fucking guitar is some reverbed out chords, guess what they don't fucking need you you're in the back that's a different discussion though because if 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 the if the
2: main riff of the guitar like let's use charlie pierce's attention which was a number one song is boom, and that's all real guitar he played it himself like so it's like all of that stuff is in there it's kind of policey it has the ninth chord in it it sounds a little bit like every breath you take the way he's flavoring it out there's there, there's always going to be a bunch of stuff that has that in there i just don't buy it because i feel like the idea of okay let's cherry pick the first 50 songs on spotify is, you're not when it's when it's the sample's
1: that big you're not cherry picking you're actually looking at a bit you're but i'm cherry. saying
2: when you when you take the first 50 songs let's say the viral 50 on on spotify which is a chart i like so the viral 50 in the states and the viral 50 in the world I listen to them separately because they have a completely different playlist. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, is when you listen to the viral fifty in the world, there's tons of guitar. There's tons of actual bands that are in that list. There's a lot of reggaeton actually, yeah. and a lot of that reggaeton stuff is guitar based. But then you go on the, the USA viral fifty, and it's nine million songs by Uzi Vert. But it's but it's a whole you know. But don't forget still, about
1: Post Malone. He's well, got like Post 20. is
2: amazing. But you know, go listen to Feeling Whitney on his record. It's a complete like acoustic jam. Like, it's just acoustic guitar. I mean, it's not like there's no, um, you know, I, I just, I get frustrated when people want to say one thing or another is either more important or less important because obviously it's the voice, you know, it's the voice of, uh, of, of whoever's using it.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, listen, I, I definitely hear all of that. Um. I just, I think those, uh, seeing those things and making those observations are relevant. And my whole thing is, you're, you're right. There's always going to be an exception. There's always going to be a Gary Clark Jr. who's mm-hmm. just so good and who is, uh, you know. There's certain standards and traditions that they're never going to go away, right? I mean, you could, you know, you you have someone like Amy Winehouse who shows up who's doing this '50s, uh, '60s sound that becomes the biggest thing in the world 50 years after that yeah there's i bet you there's gonna be some band in like five years or ten like uh hey w- i mean
2: i loved when bring me the horizon came out the, that sam record like we talked about earlier you know to me that was an interesting reapproach on heavy music because i really just was like over it i really didn't want to hear another heavy music song i didn't want to hear a band with distorted guitars or whatever it was you know and, and i'm one of those guys as a producer like I hate Kempers. I hate Axe Effects. I hate fake guitar tones. I can hear them a mile away. They don't excite me, you know. But then I'll hear the occasional song and be like, you know what? That's pretty baller. You know, when I hear a periphery song or something like that and they're using their Axe Effects or whatever it is, sometimes it's amazing. But for the most part, those are the things that I think end up diminishing the instrument. When you have a tone that's artificial, how do you expect the audience to connect to the player if the tone itself isn't real? you know so that's one of my things with the way guitars gets treated now the way guitars get treated now actually affects how the world perceives it and i feel like there's not a lot of organicness in modern rock well i mean you still
1: the despite the tool you still got to go out and fucking play yeah but then <laughs> so, i think of that arctic monkey song <laughs> good song but
2: it's just guitar and kick drum for the first 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, how long
1: that fucking song got to go? How, three years ago. That song's older than that. It's got to be. I could be, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I feel like that, that song's older. But, but I would put that in the, like I said, the Black Keysification. You're, sure. you're, you're cool if you do rock as long as you basically sound like Jet or the Black Keys. Yeah. And there's 50 million bands. And every time I see one of those bands, I just fucking I roll. But there's actually one band I want to ask you about. Okay. Greta Van Fleet. I've renamed them Greta Van Fluke. Fluke? Oh, you think that... No, but they're doing like 4,000 records a week. And if if you guys haven't I'm sure you've heard of this band. Listen, I know the guy. I know Jason Flom. Who's that? He's
2: the president of Lava Records, which is the band that... Which is on Universal Republic. So it's a major label. Okay? Jason Flom has done this so many times. Done what? Taken a band and just pressed the green button. He's just literally taken it and just pressed the green button. When you press that green button and you're in a position of power, you're going to get a number one song. Do you think Universal Republic has a problem getting a number one song on active rock? They got nine number one songs with Volbeat. And I was told at the time that Volbeat didn't sell that many CDs, but they could sell out their place. They could sell out their tours
1: and they were getting nine number ones, but they went, it took them forever to go gold. Well, that's actually a little bit of that isn't fair because <clears throat> what happened with Volbeat was none of their records were available in America and they, uh, they had like something like three or four records all released, like catalog records all released at the same time. And while that was happening, they were basically the... Uh, on the ground, popularity of the band was exploding faster than the actual records of songs. So it really took until they, uh, the Heaven and Hell record for it to really like... For them to yeah, actually get, isn't in the, that the first record that they did on Universal Republic? Uh, y- yes, I believe so. But what I'm saying is, previous to that, there they were the band that was completely—you can't really use that those early couple of years as a great. No, but I'm talking about
2: I'm I'm talking about the, what I was told by Avery Lipman at Universal. He okay. was telling me that the albums didn't sell that much. The records well, they put out. I, and I'm, I'm not knocking the band. I'm, that's not my point here. My no, point is, is that. They have the ability to press the button and get a number one single.
1: Okay, well, I'm not talking about number. You can have a number one single, that still doesn't mean you're gonna be selling four thousand records a week of a fucking EP. But what I, what I was interested in was not necessarily about that, but just to me, what I see. So, for if you guys haven't heard Greta Van Fleet, these young kids, I think they're from like Michigan or some shit, or mm-hmm. um, they sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. Sure, they don't sound a little bit like. Led sure. They sound like if you were like, hey we found well, no they sound exactly but like, the argument can be made that they don't sound good enough to be led Zeppelin. i did actually if yo if you told me that led Zeppel's was going on tour and robert plant can't do the shows because he because he even said he's like i can't hit those notes anymore and that kid was singing i would take Take my money today. Yeah, that's, I'm going to the show. That's fine.
2: That's like finding the Asian guy for Journey or whatever it is. But but
1: but, but it's the whole band, though. It's not just that the singer... I don't the, think the drummer he, holds holds, a, holds a, a candle to John Bonham. Oh, he's not as good as John Bonham. I'm sorry, man. You know, sorry, I don't... Well, wh- no, no, but I mean,
2: how can you... It's like saying... It's like... It's literally like saying, "Okay, I'm going to go see Van Halen, but 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 Alex isn't going to play drums. Like, well, what are you talking no about? No, it's not.
1: It's like saying I have a new band that sounds exactly like Van Halen, where the guitar player is just as good as Van Halen. You're not going to be able to tell the difference, and the drummer's maybe not as good as Alex Van Halen. But guess what? It's still pretty fucking sick. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't like it. I didn't like it because I didn't like the song. I was bored. All right, but I have this kind of theory about what. I think how rock is going to penetrate in certain ways. I feel like this is almost like um, looking into a, a, you know, the that was that that uh, mirror mirror on the wall, like the future. I feel like it's going to be stuff like this. Like I feel like in five years you're going to see a band like that, but it, they're just going to sound like Appetite for Destruction, or you're going to see some young kids that sound exactly like the Black Album. Like there's going to be this nostalgia kind of weird thing where it's it's almost so old. And of a certain thing that it, they allow it to enter the, the mainstream, Which is the broader fine. mainstream. I, I don't think that that's a terrible idea to kind of get
2: behind. Except that the shelf life of these bands is going to be questionable. You know, the idea that somebody can do a song. Airborne's still, still a band? Bob, Bob Marlett did the last Airborne record.
1: You know, we've, we've, talked,
2: we've talked in, in great depth about Airborne's career. But the thing with Airborne. Blackstone
1: a- Cherry still got a career.
2: Yeah, but who do they sound like? I don't know. Some- <laughs> <laughs> they sound like rock
1: and roll from yeah, the 70s yeah, or something. But I mean, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> who else? Um, the Darkness,
2: they're still rocking it. Again, you're talking about bands that had their moment and kind of faded into a second tier level. Yeah. So what I'm well, talking about. Well, The Darkness is- really had
1: a moment. Those other bands right, never got sure. that big. Yeah,
2: well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right.
1: Airborne does really well, though. Yeah. I think a lot of these bands you're to remember, a lot of these bands do. Um, and this is the thing I think is really important to note that America itself is a is the toughest nut to crack, and once you do crack it, it's the toughest nut to keep. Yes. So it if the way I look at it is you if you have a global career, but you know you you don't play America all the time. You, you're you have a career. I think it's hard enough just to have a career. So I, I give props where they're where they're doing. But yeah. I, I just wanted to know what you thought of that band because I think well
2: I, I you that's know, an to, exception to finish to finish my thought on Greta Van Fleet. Um. Is I just think there's a lot of adults, and I think this is the thing you're not considering. I think there are a lot of adults who like the idea of a band like that.
1: And I think. Is that you, who you think is buying the record? I do think so. Okay, I have no idea.
2: I don't think young kids who are 16 and 17 years old who are super stoked about Migos and and the weekend <laughs> and Kendrick and I don't think
1: they're dipping
2: their sauce in the rock field dipping to buy a Greta Van in that wait. sauce Buy a Greta well, Van Fleet record.
1: Well, a lot of those kids don't buy records anyway. So that's what I'm that, saying that, though. But
2: I, I, you know, I think that that's the smart part of that business model is that you're going to get a bunch of people who are just frustrated that they never got to hear another Led Zeppelin record to buy that record. Yeah. You know, I think that um, I've, you know, I also think that there's always those moments. There's always that band that comes out sounding like that one thing. You know what I mean? Um, it's been a while since we've had one of those. Too. I haven't
1: seen. The, there's this video. I don't know the band, name of the band uh, off the top of my head, but they look and, and sound exactly like Motorhead. Have you seen this video photo oh, on yeah, Facebook? Oh, yeah, yeah, Monty put that up. Monty yeah. put that up. And I was like, I was like, and people were loving. I was like, Really? So you can just take the whole thing, the whole thing, and everyone's cool as long as you motherfucker is old enough, right? Yeah, or dead. Yeah, if you dead, you old enough, you could just come out like Slayer's breaking up in a few years. Just wait fifteen years. You the new is you wait like, five years. Here is what I did: if I had like three little boys, I would just teach, and they were like five, six, seven. I would teach them how to be Slayer now. So by the time, yeah, by the time the 20, nostalgia comes around, and I'll just have these kids, and I'll just make them look. There's exactly. already
2: nostalgia. I mean, my wife wears a Slayer shirt. She's never listened to Slayer in her entire life. So there's there's this kind of like subculture awareness of the name and and the brand without actually ever having listened to the band. I think if someone did come out and did some sort of cool, twisted new version of Slayer, people would like it. They will. But,
1: they will. It's, but, not, it's yeah, indisputable. But
2: I think you know. I, I don't know. I, I think the shelf life of all of those things is questionable. I can't imagine Greta Van, Van Fleet being relevant five years well, here, ago. Well,
1: here's where I disagree with you. I think the songs are good. Like me, I was hating. Like, I was like, are, really? Are you Are you serious? And then I was listening to songs like, that's a catchy ass
2: song. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought it was, I thought they all sounded like Zeppelin B-sides to me. They sounded
1: like albums, the songs that didn't make the album. Hey, I'm, I was feeling that track. But so, uh, just just to wrap up real quick, because we're you know this this conversation I knew it was going to take a lot of twists and uh, turns, and we
2: barely scratched the surface. I did. This is like such the abbreviated version. I'm gonna have to. You write know a how book. long
1: we're in? Guess how long we're in?
2: We're in two and a half hours. Two
1: we're hours. about two, two and a half hours. We're about two two hours and okay a, and, a, and a few minutes. Yeah. But you know I got I got to listen. The the X Men fans they like the long podcast, but I can't I can't go too long. Okay. But we I figured what I wanted to do was get. Talk about the career, talk about production, and we'll, you know, maybe we'll have to do a part two, but I wanted to have me me and you spitball because it's basically me and him arguing about music. This is every time we get together, (laughs) this is half the uh, the time us hanging out. So I had to give you guys a little bit of that. But you were saying about where your name comes from, and you also need to give me less on how to pronounce your last name, which it it may be phonetic, it's it's
2: pretty much phonetic. It's just tick. Like if you, you know, like when you buy tickets, you go to Ticketron. Yeah, it's just Ticketin.
1: Ticketin. See, that's I never. I'd have been like, yeah, or, or stick it in without. Ticketin. Stick it in without a yes. Ticketin. What? What is that? Um, it's Russian. It's Russian. Yeah. God damn, I'm learning something every day. Yeah, my dad is a big Russian guy. My mom's a little Puerto Rican lady. Man. So, but yeah. So what about the so, emails, So man? my real
2: name is Dan. <laughs> my, <laughs> my real name is Daniel, but my uh, my mother named me Daniel, but um, in the Early 90s, I fell in love with a girl. Everything with me is about some girl. I'm just sorry. That's just what it is. Every single time. So I fell in love with a girl. She's a meditator. She's into, uh, if anybody wants to Google Osho Rajneesh, he was a very, very famous guru in the 80s and 90s. Actually died in 91, so in the 80s. Um, But uh, he had an ashram in India. And... Uh, I was really into him and really into spiritual, this whole, you know, I'm 20 years old, I want to be a spiritual guy and start learning all this Eastern religion stuff. And basically, I, uh, I met her, I became a disciple, if you will, of the guru, and they gave me a name. And to the, to the date of which I had gotten the name, everyone else's names were terrible. One guy I knew, his name was Parajat. One guy's name was Arjuna. One guy's name, these typical kind of... Arjuna's pretty cool. Arjuna's okay. But then there was like uh, Premananda, all these weird names that I didn't want. That's like the Indian Madonna. Basically. So then I'm sitting there and I get my, I get this sheet of paper that they've sent from India. I basically gave them my date of birth and they did some astrological nonsense. And then they gave me back this piece of paper and on the piece of paper it said Amrit, which is like Mr., It's like the first part, it's Sanskrit, so it's like Amrit, and in the back name is Sahaj. And when I saw the word Sahaj, in the the cheesiest, most mystical, esoteric, new-agey, bullshit way, I laughed for 20 minutes. I just uncontrollably laughed, sitting there, looking at this word. And I flipped the page over, and it tells you what Amrit Sahaj means. And Amrit means eternal, and Sahaj means spontaneity. So Eternal Spontaneity, which I thought was a pretty good name for a musician. So I, uh, I just, I, I immediately just started slowly making that my name. And this is in like 92. Um, by 96, I got it tattooed on my arm. That was my decision to say, okay, well, I'm not going to be anyone else. You're like, I'm
1: ambiguously brown, and I'm yeah. Sahaj. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. And I told, uh, you know, and that was when I actually started making my parents call me Sahaj. I mean, it was like a thing. And then uh, yeah, every girl that I was with called me that, and, you know, it just stuck, and I loved it. And it, then what ended up happening, of course, now I'm Sahaj, and the band's name is Ra. So they're like, oh, you're Egyptian. So everybody thought I was Egyptian for like 10 years, basically. I, and I didn't. And I kind of didn't tell them not, no, that I wasn't. No, just I go was along like, Who with cares?
1: it. cares? So that was that right on well that's a great way to put a cap on this maybe we'll do a a part two we'll have to see like I said me me and you you're one of those people we can just mix it up for hours we
2: really need to talk about like
1: next time we need to talk about the uh, state of the world state of the oh shit state of the world I'm down well though any of the state of the world ones you have to like record it and release it right away because then the world changes a month later and then something happens so thank you brother for coming on I appreciate it absolutely was raw with the song called Super Mega Dubstep from their 2013 album, Critical Mass. That's a really cool song. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed my conversation with Sahaj, even though it took two sessions to get it done. And it was a long one, but the long ones are always fun. I like getting into the real details, the meat, the meat of it, you know? That's the stuff that I enjoy because you know what? You're really not gonna get that anywhere um, I think in the, in the way that, that this show does it and, you know, I got to do my thing out here. So thank you to Sahaj for co- taking his time. Cause he actually, you know, that, mo- that motherfucker is busy as hell. He, you know, you, he's, he's, he's working on 50 projects. He's doing a million things because when you're that good, you are always in demand. So. Huge, huge thanks to him. That was a lot of fun, and a uh, huge thanks to you guys for keeping everything going with the show. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything I I need from you guys. Uh, nah, I'm I'm good, man. Just you know, keep doing stuff. Just su- support the show sponsors. Tell your friends about the X Men. I'm telling you, you know, the guys. The show is growing. I had my numbers jump fifty percent from last month to the to this latest month, and um, that's pretty nuts. So if the show just keeps getting bigger it keeps getting more fun. I just need to find time to do this thing, guys. They got me working like a dog out here on this damn tour. But cuz these uh these headline shows, we like we start early. Usually Tommy and I have to go perform on the radio, do acoustic sets early, then sound check, then up to two meet and greets. Then by that time that's over. It's the show is starting, and then we're playing. You know, we're playing like an hour, and then after the show we go to the merch and like hang out and take pictures and and meet people, uh, which is listen was is more than a pleasure to do. But it's a long day, so it's not a lot of time to actually get podcasts done. So I'm doing trying to do get a lot of my work done on days off and when I can fit it in. But things should be a little bit easier on this summer tour because we're playing earlier we're playing shorter and there's gonna be a little bit less of a demand so that'll be a lot of fun i'm looking forward to that but you know sometimes you gotta you gotta grind baby i know y'all grind you working working everybody's working hard you know i get it anyway i'm not gonna keep talking with this long ass show i'm gonna get out of here and go to the mall and get a motherfucking slurpee mamba out
0: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.